should pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern sense is common sense. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. Point out the colors of you I see them too And boy, I like them I like them I like them We way too fly to partake In all this hate We out here vibing We vibing We vibing Alexa, play Ariana Grande Okay With Amazon Music A voice is all you need Get tens of millions of songs Download the Amazon Music app today Another venture here on Southern Sense. You're listening to on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis, and we're already starting the show off one week off. And it's already all messed up. I am unable to get the um, the broadcast to go over onto Facebook because I got everything all set up. And just as I'm doing it, it says you have to reauthorize Facebook. What the? Wow. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm trying to get the the program to work to get me back in. <laughs> so if anyone's I- trying to find out where I am, I'm not up on Facebook just yet. This is messed up. And I thought next Friday was the 13th. <laughs> but anyway, I'm here in Central Florida with a nice view of a lovely lake and um, nice little birds flying around. And I'm on the most interesting radio show. <laughs> <laughs> Where nothing goes right. Listen, we got ourselves jam, jam packed up. Uh, so we've got to move things along a little bit fast today, and so I hope you guys can keep up. Uh, we're starting off the show with Sam Faddis. He's got a book out that was just released yesterday called The CIA War in Kurdistan. Absolutely stunning book. I read it cover to cover. I got the press copy, so I read it ahead of time, guys. Uh, that's followed by Rick Amato. He's got the TV show on uh, Newsmax called Amato Talk. And our favorite a gunnery sergeant, USMC, hoorah, Jesse Jane Duff. Oh, she's not a quiet person, you know. She's going to be joining us along with Rick. And then we have a new guest, Michael Petrelli. Uh, he's got a new book out called How to Educate an American. And it sounds like a very dull book. But, guys, if you are pissed off with your education system in your local school district, this is a must-read book. It's a series of essays by people like Michael Barone. Um, oh, geez, my mind just went out the window. Uh, oh, good Lord. Uh, uh, when we talk to him, we'll t- discuss some of the people that wrote some of these uh, essays. Okay. But it's fast-paced. It tells you what's wrong with the education system and then offers you solutions. Followed by our friend Mark Sutherland. He's had that film out called The Iris Echo. If no one's seen it, it's about a 25-minute film. It will blow your mind. And then Dan Perkins is going to join him at the same time. He's going to be talking about something called The Jezebel Spirit. Now, this is spooky. 
So we'll talk about this, all this, uh, when we get to that part of the show. But in the interim, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is rather special. It's not going out to one or two or maybe three different people. This is going to be going out to 24 different people. Today's show is being dedicated to the 24 law enforcement officers who lost their lives. This illness is related to 9-11, their work at Ground Zero in the search, rescue, and recovery effort. So today's show is going out to 24 American heroes. And it's going to start, just bear with me as I look for my notes here. I'm a little discombobulated here. Just bear with me. Hey, it's Friday. That it is. That it is. And actually, I misplaced the sheet of paper I've been looking for. Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, on 9-11, four planes were launched by Al-Qaeda hijackers at the United States. One at the Pentagon, one at the Capitol, and two at the Twin Towers. Over 22... 25,000 people were rescued that day from the Twin Towers. But since that time, the brave men and women that served in law enforcement, in the steelworkers industry, as firefighters and other first responders, responded to the World Center. And since that time, these men and women have been dying and they continue to die from diseases and illnesses, mostly cancers, related to 9-11. And today's show is dedicated to these brave men and women. And for those that have passed since that date, from the New Jersey State Police Department, on April 2nd of this year, Staff Sergeant Brian U. McCoy from the Port Authority for New York, New Jersey Police Department on June 6th, Police Officer William James Fahey from the Cayuga County Sheriff's Office. Under Sheriff on, I'm sorry, on August 29th, Under Sheriff Joseph P. McLeod. From the New York State Police, on August 10th, Sergeant Jeffrey M. Cesaria. From the NYPD, 20 officers lost their lives from 9-11 related illnesses. January 19th, Officer Kenneth Xavier Dominique. January 28th, Detective Joseph M. Roman. March 9th, Police Officer Gregory V. Melita. March 14th, 
Detective Philip J. I'm sorry, J. Philip T. Perry. March 21st. Police Officer Michael Edmund Teal. April 10th. Detective Charles James Humphrey. April 25th. Lieutenant Philip E. Panzarella. May 2nd. Police Officer Patrick Thomas McGovern. May 29th. Police Officer Keith A. Ferrara. May 31st. Police Officer James B. Boyle. June 29th. Detective Andrea Renee Jacqueline Rainier. Also June 29th. Detective Luis Gustavo Alvarez. July 20th. Detective Christopher Cranston. July 21st. Detective Thomas Santuro. August 4th. Police Officer Raymond Harris. September 9th. Detective Joseph Palillo. September 19th. Police Officer Derek Bishop. November 28th. Detective Maureen M. O'Flaherty. December 6th. Deputy Chief Vincent A. D. Marino. And December 19th. Sergeant Scott Johnson. 24 brave men and women who on September 11th selfishly dove into the disaster at Ground Zero, working tirelessly to rescue people, working tirelessly to recover those that we lost. Today's show is dedicated to these brave men and women, and to them we play this song by Todd Allen Herndon, my name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name I stand proud and free My name is America Don't tread on me I cannot be broken I cannot be shamed If you hurt me, I 
others gave it to me They believe in the virtues I stand for My respect for humanity Now I'm challenged by tyrants Their vicious deeds become my finest hour because my name is America. I stand proud and free. My name is America. Don't tread on me. I cannot be to anyone that is watching live on Facebook. We had ourselves a little bit of a glitch trying to get the video up feed, uh, but we are now back up on Facebook and wherever else <laughs> the video goes. Uh, welcome back to another <laughs> whacked out broadcast here with Southern Sense on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up at night and Stitcher Speaker, YouTube, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in little southern com. I'm your hostess. <laughs> That's whacked out the mostess, the radio chick, along with my co-host going, what the is going on, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, hey, Good afternoon, Curtis. Behind the scenes. I know you work in it. Uh, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm sweating bricks, you guys. <laughs> But we got ourselves up and running. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to have our friend Sam Faddis uh, call in, a former CIA. Uh, he's got a new book that was just released, and I'm putting up in front of the camera if I can get the angle right. Uh, the CIA war in Kurdistan, the untold story of the Northern Front in the Iraq War. I mean, I'm telling you, if you read this book, it will absolutely knock your socks off. Um, he was there right smack in the heart of everything. And talk about snafus. Talk about a dysfunctional government. What this man went through and 
his life at risk and, and the lives that, of the men and women that worked with him that were put at risk by incompetence, uh, not on his behalf, but uh, back at, at headquarters and trying to get approval from the government and promising stuff to the Kurds that he eventually was not able to deliver but found ways about you know, trying to get it smuggled in. I mean, an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal book. So he should be calling in any moment now. So I uh, want to welcome everyone that is with us in the chat room, <laughs> saying hi to Sasquatch and a duck and sheep out there. I see you guys. I'll get around to putting something in the chat room in a few minutes. But, oh, man, Curtis, talk about computer uh, problems. And you're getting started on my line? Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, every time you speak into the mic, it's like kind of like buzzing, breaking up. Oh, man. Oh, man. So I'm not sure if there's some feedback going on or what. Well, I don't know. Uh, people tell me in the chat room whether or not uh, you can hear us clear and uh, and nice. Otherwise, it might be something on Curtis's end. But uh, we'll just keep on going. But, you know, there is so much to talk about that's going on. And you know me, Curtis. i got about a thousand different things I pull out to talk about. <laughs> I've got about several inches yeah. thick. Let's talk, about, let's talk about Chucky and his threats to the Supreme Court justices. What a, what, what nerves this guy got. And they're going to try All to right. walk it back. All right. Uh, they're saying they're hearing a buzz in on the line. So, guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if I can try to call myself back in. So, Curtis, uh, bear with us uh, while <clears> I try to see if I can get myself dialed back in here. So I'll be back in a few moments. All right, and if anybody's listening, back to uh, Mr. Chuck Schumer. How how ironic that this guy has the nerve to threaten the Supreme Court justice. Does he not know that we have three separate but equal um, parts of government? Apparently not. Apparently, he doesn't know what the word threat means either, because um, in his retort, he claims he wasn't really threatening anyone. Um, matter of fact, he came close to denying that he even was talking about the Supreme Court justices, even though he mentioned two by name. He said he was talking about the U.S. Senate. So, I mean, it's just like most liberals, when you catch them in a lie, they respond with another lie. So, if you or I had done that, we would have Secret Service sitting on our doorstep in a cocaine, co- cocaine, cocaine heart. Yeah. You know that? Oh, yeah. But, if Trump had said that, yeah. it would have been, you know, if he said that about um, Ruth Bader or any of the other Democrats on the Supreme Court Secret Service be talking to him too. And they'd be demanding yeah. that he step down as president. Oh, sure. Well, actually, he turned around and said he thought, no, he didn't demand, he thought it might be a good idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and um, who was the other one? Elena Kagan? I or think was it was Sotomayor. 
sort of where you are. Should recuse themselves in um, uh, weighing in on certain issues, certain issues which they advocated off the bench. That's right. And he didn't actively advocated for off the bench. Mm -hmm. Now, how can you be impartial in deciding an issue in which you actively worked for? Now, isn't that a conflict of interest? By law, a con by the court. It is. So what he said, what he said had legal basis to it. But what I'm going to say it, Schmuck Schumer did did not have legal basis. But anyway, with that said, with such powerful language, I'll bring our guest in on the line. And good afternoon to Sam Pettis. Good afternoon, Sam. How are you today? I am doing very well. How about you guys? Uh, How how do you like the introduction? I'm discussing Chuck Schumer with the uh, colorful language. My New Yorker in me. (laughs) Was that Chuck or Schmuck? I couldn't catch that. (laughs) You got it right. (laughs) (laughs) You got that absolutely right. So, you know, you've got a marvelous book that was just released yesterday, and I held um, a picture of that up for the the camera so they can see all the little post-it notes and everything I've got in there, having read the book from cover to cover. And I'm telling you, Sam, I know a book is good when I pick it up, and I really do not want to put it down. And this well, is a book, I, I'm I, telling I, you. I take that as a compliment. Thank you. I, it is action-packed, and it's the true story of what you went through as the forward movement or the forward groundwork going into um, the Iraq war. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's the story of the team, the CIA team, with some military augmentees that was on the ground for inside Iraq for almost a year before the, the formal invasion. Yeah. And, and you went in and I don't even know where to start because uh, <laughs> I've got notes uh, all over the place. And uh, you were talking about when you went in and you, you had a problem just getting into Iraq because Turkey who was supposedly an ally of ours, was throwing so many roadblocks up. And they're still doing that today. They haven't stopped. They, they have this, this thing in their head that Iraq is actually part of Turkey, especially areas of Kurdistan. Yeah, I mean, what you need, to, I mean, you know, what, what people maybe forget for, for good reason, it's been a while, is that I mean, the modern state of Turkey is uh, an outgrowth of what we used to call the Ottoman Empire that dominated most of what we now call the Middle East. And there's a big, so still a very strong mindset, particularly in people like the Turkish general staff, the military, those kinds of folks, that, you know, Turkey needs to return to that role. Uh, there's an expression in Turkish they refer to Arabs, and it loosely translates as former slave races. So, um, you know, they're not Arabs. Uh, they're not Iranians. They don't view themselves that way. They despise the Kurds. That's, you know, the world is filled with blood feuds like this, and this is one of them. They, 
on some level, some of those guys in the Turkish general staff would just as soon take care of the Kurdish problem by burying them all. That's not an exaggeration. And so we launched into this thing, we being Washington, with this idea that we want to get into Kurdistan, destroy Saddam Hussein, help the Kurds, and of course the Turks will help us just because there are NATO allies, and that's not the way that works at all in the Middle East. So, yeah, they were against us uh, from day one. In fact, at various located times, I was told by multiple Turkish officers effectively, get out of Iraq, and if you don't, we're closing the border and you're trapped here. And our response effectively was, okay, good, bye, we'll be fine. Yeah, and just trying to get supplies, of course. And yet, for some reason, the mindset in Washington, D.C., the whole long time, was that Turkey is an ally of ours, and somewhere along the way, it's going to happen, and they're going to toe the line, and they're going to you know, help us in this effort. And that was one of the biggest boondoggles of the whole episode. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is it never happened. I mean, they, the entire idea was we go in, we prep the battlefield, if you will, we being CIA with some various specialized military units folded in with us. And then behind us come larger numbers of Green Berets who expand and work with the Kurds. And then this is all preparation for the part where the entire 4th Infantry Division with all sorts of other units attached to it, you know, 40 or 50,000 guys was supposed to roll into northern Iraq. And keep in mind, I mean, we're up in Kurdistan, which is at this point, which is technically part of Iraq, but is in effect an independent autonomous region. We're with the Kurds. Uh, faced off against us are literally 150,000 Iraqi troops armed with teeth, armor, tanks, artillery, surface to surface missiles. So the idea was we're going to get a big chunk of big army in here to fight this battle. And then the end result is, as you've suggested, when it's all done, that never happened. I mean, when the balloon went up, it was us and by that point a relative handful of additional military personnel and the Kurds. And um, despite all the mistakes that were made, the good news out of that is that those 150,000 Iraqi troops – Ultimately, not only were pinned down and didn't go south, but eventually effectively faded away or surrendered. Um, so we won, despite the fact that we were short 50,000 guys. You know, it, it's funny because, you know, um, you know I start each show off with a dedication to fallen heroes. And what people don't understand is, you know, when a hero falls, there's plaques, there's accolades, you know, um, there's – Everyone knows who they are. They get street names after them. They have memorials put up. But when it's the CIA, no one knows. These are men and women that put their lives on the line for our country. And should they fall in the line of duty, there is no plaques. There's no accolades. And just quietly they fade into just memory of you men and women out there still working with the field. And you dedicated your book to their memory. And I think that's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the book ends up probably having a lot of value in terms of hopefully making us better going forward and making policy decisions. But to be completely honest, I wrote that book with 
precisely one motivation, and that was to make sure exactly as I put in the dedication that or in the introduction that the men and women on that team were never are never forgotten what they did. That 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 sums up my entire motivation for doing that. And your comments about people getting killed are dead on. Um, I when I came on the agency. I was getting ready to go into training. I was actually sitting on a desk, helping out, basically being an intern, waiting for my training cycle to start. Uh, six weeks into that, my boss was blown up by a bomb in the Middle East because he'd gone out on assignment. And so six weeks into my time at the agency, I'm going through his desk, uh, boxing up his personal effects so I can deliver them to his widow. That, that's my introduction to CIA and that that operation, that incident, that operation, that how he died, that remains classified, and nobody's ever talked about that, and it happens all the time. Yeah, well, today's dedication we did was to the 24 men and women that lost their lives to 9/11-related illnesses, and people don't realize. It has been 19 years, and still the first responders are still dying today, and no one knows their names. And when I did that, I I did it because I thought of you, and I thought of the men and women you served with that lost their lives that no one knows their names. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, even in the dedication to this book, all the they're identified by what we would say their color signs, you know, their nicknames, how we how we talk on the phone or, or just refer to each other in the field. It's just it's just habit. Even if you're not formally in the LES, we just don't use true names in the field. Basically, it's just a possible compromise. So everybody is everybody's usually known by some call sign that has to do with some embarrassing uh, episode. That's that's how we memorialize that in the field. <laughs> He did something. He did something dumb. We're never going to let it forget. It was one guy on the team <laughs> who I referred to as Bullwinkle. So this guy is actually a very squared away guy, but he had very large ears. And I actually hadn't yet given him a call sign, and he was off some distance away. And I was talking to him on the on the radio, but you know, multiple people can hear. And I I referred to him as Bullwinkle. I said, "Hey, Bullwinkle," and he doesn't respond to me. He acts like he can't hear me because he doesn't like that nickname. So that's like, okay, well, that's that seals that seals the deal, man. You don't get to pick your own nickname. And the fact that it bothered you, oh, now we're done. You're going to be full with for the rest of the time you're in country, brother. That's the way. That's the way this works. And everybody listening on the radio is like shaking their heads, like, oh, this boy doesn't know how this works. <laughs> The boss, is, the boss is not gonna, boss is not moving on to a new name because it bothers you. <laughs> yes, sir. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. Yes. How long do you think um, Turkey will be tolerated by the members of NATO? Well, I mean that's a that's a that's a really good question. I think that um, you know that's hard to say. I can't pin an exact time on it, but I think their presence in the alliance. Their continued presence in the alliance is very problematic. I mean, we we entered into an alliance with them and brought them into NATO based on exactly one thing: a common shared fear of the Russians, or the Soviet Union, or concern about them. Uh, but they've got a whole new agenda, and 
this Reggie Erdogan, who is their president now slash sultan, he has pretensions. You know, he really wants to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire. He wants them to be big men on the block and throw their weight around. And uh, now, you know, the silliness he's doing now with the refugees again, opening his borders, letting illegal migrants flood into Europe. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if five years from now they're not members of the NATO alliance, that will not surprise me at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it is crazy because um, when Erdogan took power, everyone goes, oh, he's pro-West, he's pro-West. And when you looked at what he was doing prior to coming to power, and I'm saying, no, he wants to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire. And no one believed me. But lo and behold, and he's been in power, what now, something like 20 years or so? Am I right or wrong? Yeah. Something to no, you're, 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 you're right. And there, and um, he, you know, the, to be fair, I mean, in the agency, um, we warned Washington for a long time before he took power that uh, this guy means exactly what he says. This is a dramatic departure in many, many ways from what Turkey has been. I mean, when, when Turkey was when, when the Ottoman Empire fi- fell and Ataturk created modern Turkey, he created it as a, you know, as you know, a, a a secular state, really on a European model. His conclusion was the reason the Ottoman Empire fell apart is because it needed to be more like the Europeans, literally to the point of mandating men wear jackets and men can't wear women can't wear headscarves, and they all had to get last family names like Europeans had because that was never a Turkish thing, and they gave up. Arabic script and adopted English alphabet. This is how hardcore he was in that respect. And he wasn't, you know, the religion, he didn't outlaw Islam, but Islam was for him maybe the problem. And then Erdogan is a dramatic 180 degree departure. And we told Washington for years, this guy is not going to come in and just pay lip service to these issues. That's not what's happening here you're going to see a fundamental transformation of this country. And, in you know, I mean, you can produce the best intel in the world. It doesn't mean anybody's ever going to listen to you. And Washington largely ignored it and thought it'll just be fine. And, you know, it's not fine, really. No, it's not. Now, one of the primary purposes that you went into um, Iraq was to look for weapons of mass destruction. And you were supposed to be inserted back in February, and it was quite a while before you finally got in there. February, I'm sorry, February 2002. Let me finish the statement. Uh, but anyway, um, it took a while for you to get in there, and you started to do the search for weapons of mass destruction. And you had some possible leads and possible false leads and back and forth. Uh, you never actually found anything. But here, back in the United States, we were having a large discussion about why are we going over there? Should we be going over there? But people didn't understand that Saddam Hussein had been putting up so many blusters, um, so many threats, that, and not just to the national stage, but to his own people, to the point that even his closest advisors assumed he had them without actually knowing for a fact whether or not he did. Yeah, that's a perfect summation. I mean, first of all, also, all of this occurs against the baseline of the fact that we knew that in the past he had not only possessed weapons of mass destruction, but particularly in the case of chemical weapons, he used them extensively. They were used 
In the eight years of the Iran-Iraq war, they were used routinely by the Iraqis in mass quantities. Not a couple of shells here or there. They, major artillery barrages of chemical weapons. They used them on the Kurds uh, massively. Killed basically the entire town of Halabsa with no gas and mustard gas. I'm talking men, women, children. So that was known, uh, again, not a theory, not an intel report, but we've seen this in action. And nobody, therefore, in his own, well, and then added to that, this is kind of sick, twisted Saddam logic. At the same time when he finally decides to divest himself of these because he wants to get out from under U.S. sanctions, he knows that if his enemies, the Iranians, his own regime opponents, the Kurds, if they ever wake up one morning and believe he's telling the truth about that and believe that he actually got rid of those things, that he's probably done, that he probably won't make it till sundown because that's how many enemies he has. So while the same time he's telling us the truth, as it turns out, he continues to feed his own people this lie. And at some point you would think as the army is massing to invade his country, it would dawn on him that this is not a particularly good tactic, but apparently not. Um, I talk about in the book just as one example, debriefing a very senior Iraqi officer who by that point was working for us. I'm talking to a general with many stars on his shoulders. And, you know, does Saddam have chemical weapons? Of course. Are they at your base? Yes, of course. And this is all said in the tone of, what, are you stupid? Yes, of course. Why? How much, what kind? These kinds. How are they, where are they in artillery shells or whatever? They're artillery shells. Whatever. This is what color marking they have on. This is the serial number, blah, blah, blah. We have, I can show you on the imagery exactly where the bunkers are. We go on down this road. All right, finally, it's, okay, so when was the last time you were in that bunker and saw them? The answer is, well, I, don't, I can't go in the bunker. It's under the control of the Special Republican Guard and I'm a regular army officer. So obviously I can't see them. But of course they're there. We've always had them there, and we, we use them immediately. Bringing you actually the operational order for that core, saying as soon as hostilities begin, you will use chemical weapons. Send all that to Washington. Say, okay, that's what I know. Can I get inside the bunker? I cannot. Do I have a guy right now who can get inside that bunker? No. Maybe give me six months. I might. But right now, I just don't happen to have a source inside that particular special Republican Guard. So over to you guys. Uh, and that's kind of where we were. I will say also this, that when we first made this plan to go into Iraq in February of 02, it was not predicated on weapons of mass destruction. It was predicated on the idea that Saddam Hussein is a menace to the Middle East, a danger to world peace, and he needs to go. It was not dependent upon him having weapons of mass destruction. It was dependent upon, look, this guy's a monster. It's tolerated in the enough and we've got to get rid of him. Well, you know, you know, I'm kicking myself because I wanted to send you an editorial I wrote in reference to this back in May of 2003. And at that time, my local paper wasn't as communist as it is now. So I had complete below the fold for the entire editorial, which was four columns. And, you know, here I am. I'm not someone with your knowledge, but I had enough 
where I read the news, I checked things out. I don't look at just one side. You know me, Sam. I'm going to tackle everything for every side of it before I completely understand an issue. And this guy was going, what are you going in for? Weapons of mass destruction. And I then cited the 11 U.S., uh, not the U.S., U.N. violations that Saddam Hussein committed in our ability to inspect four weapons of mass destruction. Eleven times he challenged the U.N. and violated their specific resolutions, and I listed them. Uh, Resolution 687 being one of them. Uh, Resolution 1141, another one that they uh, he violated. And I go on and on and on, uh, even listing the paragraph of each resolution he violated. Um, I counted them 661, 678, 686, 687, 688, 707, 715, 986, 1284, 11, 4, I'm sorry, 1441, and so forth. And then I said that your primary goal was not this. And in my editorial, I stated in 93 that your primary goal, not knowing you back then, was to right. get rid of Saddam Hussein. And I told this idiot who I was responding to that, because of the environment that Saddam Hussein had created for his people, that the average age of a person was only 36 to 48 years old. And he had been in power at that point for 12 years, and they had been under his thumb for those, that, those 12 years. And I told him, this is at least one-third the lifetime of these individuals that they have been oppressed. Like, they don't know freedom that you guys were going in there to get rid of Saddam Hussein primarily. And if I knew yeah, this back in 93, why do we have people here today in 2020 going, where's the weapons of mass destruction? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, this is, this is, this is an excellent point, right? This people forget this man was a monster of, of, <laughs> Of proportions that's really, I mean, hard to comprehend, and I'm laughing not because it's funny, because it's it's so sad and it's so incredible that people have forgotten this. I mean, in the Kurdish region where we operated, he conducted an operation called Anfal, um, in which he went in and invaded Kurdistan. And literally amongst people like the Barzani clan, who were really the folks that supported us. And I mean, they, they gave us the platform from which we operated when we were in country. It would round, round up every male 12 and older and execute them all. We're talking people, we're talking like 100,000 people killed in that one operation where you're digging trenches to bury them with bulldozers and bulldozing their bodies into these graves. An entire town of Halapja, and Halapja is just one, and I'm talking a town of like 10,000 people, killed with nerve gas and mustard gas. I'm talking mothers holding their babies killed with nerve gas dropped from aircraft. That's what this guy was about. Our base house that we worked out of, basically, if you will, our support staff, was all Kurdish women. In other words, we lived off the economy. So the folks that got the groceries and fed us and kept the house running and did all of that stuff were all Kurdish women. They were all Kurdish women who, in effect, had lost all of the men in their families. They No husbands anymore, no brothers anymore, no fathers anymore, and they themselves 
victims of chemical attack and had been brutalized in every way you can imagine in ways that hopefully no normal person can imagine. Um, and this guy had done that all throughout that, that country, but probably more to the Kurds than anybody else. And uh, if there's ever a guy in history that deserved to go, um, <laughs> that was it. I mean, he, he was a monster. And the other thing about weapons of mass destruction is just look, if you're talking about nerve gas, VX, Sarah, and things like this, you're talking about technology that was operational in the sense of had been refined enough to use militarily in the 1930s. There's nothing cutting edge. It's, it's an outgrowth, actually, of insecticide production, and it can be mass-produced using relatively common available chemicals. If you've still got the scientists and the engineers to make nerve gas, it doesn't make any difference if I just knock down your factory. As soon as I turn down, turn my back, you can reconstitute that factory. It's it, it, this idea that like there's six guys in the planet that know how to do this, and you have to have a special, super secret something is silly. I mean, what, if he's still there, and he still has the intent, and he still has the scientists, the engineers, which he did, then the second you drop sanctions, he will rebuild that factory, and he'll be back at it. I mean, they're. You can't stop that unless you get rid of him. So in that sense, the idea that you've got to go hunt for chemical weapons as if there's a finite quantity of them is missing the whole point. He can make as much nerve gas as he wants easy. Literally, the Germans were mass producing it before the Second World War. And things like mustard gas, that was old technology in the First World War a century ago. So there's nothing exotic here. You can't, it's not like they just go find the WMD and now we're safe. As long as that regime existed, that, that threat was not going to go away. No, no, not at all. And you had mentioned the atrocities against the citizens and you, you talked about in your book, some instances where this young girl who was handicapped, autistic, being kidnapped out of the hotel and the horrors that she went through. And this was just one girl. This is happening almost on a daily basis. His two sons, Uday and Kuse, were notorious for, you know, going through the towns and saying, oh, that one looks good, just swooping the, the poor victim up and then dumping them back in the street. And luck, they're lucky if they're still alive when they get dumped back in the street. I'm sorry, you know, I don't unfortunately, know if you say they're happened, lucky if they're alive. All- well, that, I mean, it happened, happened all the time. It was, in fact, a fact of life with Uday and Kusei that they would do exactly what you said. They're at an event. They're wherever. They see a woman. They decide they're interested in her. She is abducted. She is then raped, brutalized, abused for however long that amuses them. And then she's dumped. And that could, by the way, I mean, not that – that this could also be just the wife – of one of their officers serving underneath them that they happen to, to take an interest in. And then the, the unstated understanding is no one ever talks about this. No one complains. There will never be no reckoning. Your wife now shuts up about the fact that she was raped for the last three days. You never mention it and we move on. And in the case you're talking about this poor teenage girl that was raped because she had some learning disabilities and so forth. And just when she was dumped back in this hotel, she began to shriek. And I mean, 
understandably, just basically she's terrified, she's let loose, she's screaming, she's wailing, she's attracting attention, can't stand. So she's then taken off and slaughtered. I mean, because this is now embarrassing to Uge and Kusei to have her running around talking about what has happened to her. We can't have that. So we're just going to kill her. I mean, and this is <laughs> this is this sick, twisted nightmare. I, I, I one of the most dramatic things that happened to me the entire time we were in there. I talk about it in the book. Is right when the air war was starting, and we're waiting to see what the Iraqis are going to do. And we're within artillery range of the Iraqi forces in our base house and surface-to-surface missile range. And it is very probable at that point, as far as we're concerned, that we're going to get hit with chemical weapons pretty much any time. So the surrounding Kurdish population is moving away from the Iraqi forces up higher into the mountains. And I walk into the kitchen to get a drink. It's midnight, whatever. I'm working. I'm still moving traffic back to Washington, moving message traffic. And I find one of my officers who we call the book Snake, who speaks Farsi, who's, you know, Iranian. And it, it ended up being kind of a common language because many of us, the Kurds spoke it as well. And he's talking to all these women that I mentioned earlier who basically do all of the work to keep our base running. And they're all very agitated and ask him what's going on. And basically he says, look, they're worried. Everybody else is fleeing and heading into the mountains. Every one of them has lost every male relative they ever had before. They know what the Iraqis are capable of, and basically they want to know what we're going to do. And I said to them, you know, I'll summarize, we came here to get rid of Saddam. We're not running. We're going the other way. We're going to Baghdad, Mosul, Kirkuk. We leave when he's done. Uh, but you guys, meaning the women, there's no reason you have to stay here. We can cook, clean. I mean, we can survive. And, man, the, the lady I talk about in the book is basically the sort of the ringleader of this thing. You know, the way I can describe her reaction is she gets her back up. She looks at me, snakes translating, and what she tells me straight up is, if you're here to fight for us and you're going that way, there's no way in hell we're running away. And, I mean, I'm getting emotional actually even talking about it this many years later. And I'm looking at this lady thinking, you've been raped abused, your husband's dead, your sons are dead, you've watched entire cities get killed with nerve gas, and you won't run. Now that, you know, that's raw courage. Like you, this isn't any joke, man. This is not bravado. You know exactly what you're face-to-face with, but you're like, if you're here, we're right with you. Wow. You know, the courage of these women and the courage of the Kurds themselves. Now, there was two factions uh, of the Kurds. There was the, um, the KDP and the PKK. And you had to walk P- a fine P-U-K. Yeah, P-U-K. The P-U-K. Yeah. And you yeah. had to walk a fine line between the two of them. Yeah. So, I mean, effectively at this point in time, I mean, the simplest way to think about it is, is you almost have two separate Kurdish kingdoms in the north. One one is run by the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, and the other is run by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PUK. And, uh, yeah, because they're all Kurds, but that doesn't mean they all get along. In fact, they had fought what amount of wars between the two of them. So we're maintaining operations across all of that sector as kind of the honest broker between them, but – 
could be really easy to get crosswise and get one of them the idea that we're favoring one over the other, uh, you know, or prevent us from moving back and forth from one area to another. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, along with all the tactical details and everything that, that happens and, and recruiting sources and gathering intelligence, there's also a lot of diplomacy goes in here. Um, and there was also a big part of just, we talked, started off talking about how we promised a lot of stuff that the Turks never let us deliver. Well, I mean, basically that amounts to us writing a lot of checks to the Kurds, figuratively speaking, and then not being able to cash them. And the longer you do that, of course, the more people are looking at you thinking, I don't know, are you serious? Are you really going to get rid of Saddam this time? Or are you just going to come in here and piss him off and then go home again and leave us to live in this neighborhood? And um, at some point that comes down to personal relationships. And, you know, I had a big part in that, but every member of that team was that that was their job all day, every day develop those relationships, make it a reality. And at some point it just became also a personal commitment to us. It was like, we're not just saying this. It's just, no, for real. Like my, I, when I say I'm not leaving till Saddam is gone, that's not smoke. I'm not leaving till Saddam is gone one way or the other. We're going to finish this job. That's my pledge to you. If you're going to stand here with me, that's my promise to you. And that's, that's the way these things have to work. I mean, Washington doesn't see it that way because they're 10,000 miles away. But on the ground, that's that's how it actually gets done. And you had the green line where you had the Iraqis on one side, you had the Kurds on the other. And, you know, neither one is supposed to cross. But the Kurds had such a wonderful smuggling system that when it came to things yeah. like you promised you promised them like you were trying to get them gas masks because you knew Saddam had these weapons and you knew that they'd used the gas against them in the past. And you want to protect them because you knew at somewhere along the way, Saddam's going to know that you're there. And once he did, he started to do attacks on you, trying to assassinate you. You knew that you were putting them at risk. They needed these gas masks. But, you know, you and the Kurds, sneaky little devils, aren't you? <laughs> Yeah, well, ultimately, Washington won't give them to the Kurds. So the bottom line is the uh, the operation ends up being, not to give everything away, but basically we steal gas masks that Saddam is buying for his own people and give them to the Kurds, which in and of itself will give you an idea of how crazy this is, right? Because we've talked about the fact that Saddam had essentially divested himself of his chemical weapons. He wasn't going to use them. But because nobody can know that, they're still buying gas masks for their own people. Lucky for us because then we steal them all. Um, the Kurds <laughs> got us everything. And when Washington, when Washington couldn't get us stuff, cell phones, uh, satellite phones, cars, vehicles, uh, and they, I mean a lot of that stuff came across the Green Line. Frankly, some of that stuff came out of the Persian Gulf. And the entire length of Iraq smuggled from south to north to us in the north to use against Saddam, smuggled it all the way through his country to us to then turn around and use it against him. You um, had to improvise. You got to, man, right? I mean, that's exactly <laughs> right. It was like, okay, here's the deal. We, 
we got to get the job done in Washington. You're not keeping up the pace. So I don't have time to mess with you. Also, I mean, you know, they send me, they send me satellite phones. I say, I'm going to give these to, I'm handing these out like hotcakes all over the rock. I mean, hi, our team via assets. These phones actually exist in Iraq, although they're a commercial product. But what's really important is when if somebody gets caught with one of these things and they check the serial number with the company, it sure as hell better not come back and say it belongs to the CIA because that will be a bad day for that guy. I get a box of these things. I start asking Washington, how did we buy these things? It doesn't, they weren't purchased directly by CIA. We go – we play 50 questions. The end result is, well, yeah, we did tell them they were going to the United States government. We went bought them from the company. Well, so I'm like, okay, now let, me, now let me ask you a question. When Saddam's guy has my boy by the throat in Baghdad, and he asks, checks with the company, and that phone that our guy's carrying is registered to the U.S. government, but not the CIA. Do you think that's an important distinction to Saddam's intelligence guy? Because I don't <laughs> no, think so. No. I don't think no. I don't think he's going to say, "Oh, my apologies, you're not talking to CIA. You're only talking to the U.S. government." Have a good day, sir. I think my guy's dead. So all of that stuff, we box up, we send home, and from that point on, we're like, "No, send me money. I'll get my own stuff." Because then I will oh, know Sam. how I got it, exactly where it came from. Sam, I've got my next guest in on the phone, but Sam, people, I'm telling them okay. to buy your book, which was, was just came out. Uh, it's up available on Amazon as of yesterday, officially, The CIA War in Kurdistan, The Untold Story of the Northern Front in the Iraq War, your upfront story of what you experienced and how you got your guys in there and back home safe. Uh, Sam Battis, you are a I'm a true American hero. You also have your and, A-N-D, and magazine that people can uh, check out with your commentary on foreign affairs as well as domestic affairs. Excellent, excellent magazine. I read your articles all the time, and sometimes I use them, Sam. So, you know, I'm going to welcome you back. We'll talk. You know, this, I mean, this is just glossing just a few short vignettes in your book, but I'm telling you, it was such a great read. I picked it up. I couldn't put it down until I'm done. And again, I'm holding up in front of the camera so everyone can see all the little post-it notes color-coded in your book that I read, Sam. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. God bless. We'll be talking, yep. Sam. Have a great day. Take care. Take, Take care. care. Take care. All right. Check out Sam Fettis, his book, uh, which is great. The CIA um, <laughs> screwed up again. The CIA war in in Kurdistan. Uh, also check out his uh, online magazine and A and D magazine. Want to welcome to the show back again, Rick Amato. Amato talks. Good afternoon, Rick. How are you doing today? Uh, doing good. Uh, nice to nice to hear your voice, Sam. Oh, it is always a pleasure. A pleasure. As a matter of fact, you've got to get Sam on your show. I mean, he is a pisser. I've known him for a bunch of years, former CIA, and he was the one that spearheaded our going into Iraq before the Iraq war fully broke out. And I'm telling you, Rick, his book is absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. That sounds good. Sounds good, yeah. Now, uh, we're waiting for uh, Jesse Jane to uh, call in. And, you know, 
Rick, I'm going to ask you to help me coach her along because she's a little shy. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, you just sent me a great editorial, and where did I put it? Uh, you sent it this morning, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I shoved it in here, and what did I do with it? Anne is losing her mind. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. What did I do? It, it had well, to they, do it with, they, the, uh, the, with the market. The coronavirus. And the, yeah. Right. Uh, here it is. Here it is right in front of me. I swear, uh, if, if it bit me, <laughs> I'd be mm-hmm. in trouble. Anyway, I mean, it was a great article because everyone's out there and they're panicking over this virus. And, um, yeah, I'm sure it is very, very serious thing that, that is, you know, attacking the world. And we know it was manufactured in China. Uh, but I think we're doing a little overreaction, aren't we? Well, well, you know, time will tell, of course. But as we sit here and watch the market drop a thousand points one day, a thousand points the next day, then up a thousand points, then down a thousand, uh, you know, the people are asking, you know, is this 1929? Is this 1987? Is this, uh, you know, is this a market crash all over again? And a couple of things you, I think that uh, people need to take into consideration. Number one, we do currently have a, a, a healthy, sound economy. Um, the Federal Reserve is, is, uh, is supportive. The labor market is a good labor market. Um, we, the banks are healthy, and uh, consumer spending is healthy. So as of right now, um, the economy is healthy. So uh, the next thing you want to ask is, you know, will it stay healthy with this coronavirus in place? And, of course, the media says the sky is falling, and it may be. We'll find out in time. But as of right now, uh, what we know is is that the economy is healthy. We have, I think, 139 cases here in the U.S., which is not a lot of coronavirus cases, but that's what we have. And... The one thing that Wall Street hates, and this is what causes selling and massive drop-offs, the one thing that Wall Street hates, and I know this is not new, it's not something no one's ever heard before, uh, but it hates uncertainty. And, um, you know, you you can't blame traders and hedge fund managers for selling uh, in this current environment, environment for a couple of reasons. One, they are really confused and uncertain with what's going on here in the U.S. as it relates to the scope of the coronavirus. So they're uncertain, they're confused, and at the same time, the stock market is at an all-time high. So you're, you're seeing stock traders doing the pragmatic thing. Stock market's at all-time high. They're confused. They're unsure. They're going to sell and, uh, and see where things play out. That, that in turn affects everyone's 401K plan or IRA on Main Street. Now, what can be done to, to satisfy the, uh, the, uh, the confusion in the mind of traders? And a couple of things. Number one, I, I just want to say that 
I I think President Trump made a fantastic, outstanding choice when he chose Vice President Mike Pence to be the head of the Coronavirus Task Force. What what President Trump needs to do now is bring Mike Pence out there every day, every day, and address the public, address the media on what's going on with the coronavirus coronavirus, uh, what the status is, updates, and so forth. If if President Trump brings Mike Pence out there every day to address it in a credible way, which is what Mike Pence knows how to do, you're going to see, in my opinion, you're going to see those traders and those hedge fund managers on Wall Street stop selling like they have been doing because now they're not going to be confused and concerned and so forth, and you're going to see more stability come back to Wall Street. Something else no, I very – go ahead. I was going to say, actually, I completely agree with you, but we also have our, our shy little wallflower here sitting on, on waiting patiently to come on, so I want to welcome aboard retired USMC gunnery sergeant Jesse Jane Duff. Good afternoon, Jesse. You're here with me, Curtis, and Rick Amato. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you know you're always welcome here, girlfriend. This is like uh, appearance yes, number three, and... We're looking for appearance number 25 down the road. <laughs> well, this is exciting time to look at the job market today. 273,000 new jobs in this jobs report for February. And they've adjusted the January and December jobs market. My goodness, we are at record low unemployment in 50 years, 3.5% unemployment rate. And here we can never forget when Barack Obama said it was not reasonable to expect that we would get below. I believe at the time it may have been four or five percent. At the time, I think five percent. He said, this new president, where is he going to come up with these jobs? What does he have? A magic wand? Well, I would say abracadabra, baby. That <laughs> pessimism in which he resonated over and over again, that it couldn't be done, reminded me of the Jimmy Carter era when he was suggesting that Congress was impossible and we needed a parliamentary style set up. Like, my goodness, just because you cannot do something instead of looking at the in the mirror under Obama and saying, maybe I've over-regulated everybody who wants to be in business. Maybe my tax policies have driven businesses out of this country. Maybe my regulations have disabled countries, uh, I'm sorry, companies from developing. But when you go back and look that we've had in 2018, there were 1,300 new women-owned businesses a day, a day in 2018. We've got over 7.2 million new jobs. Over 60% of those have gone to women. We have record low unemployment among African Americans, record low unemployment among Latinos, 
it basically everybody has an opportunity to work. And in some of these swings that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are trying to tell them that everything is so screwed up, well, guess what? In South Carolina, more people showed up to vote for the president than they did in the Democratic primary compared to 2016. That is shameful. When you look at these states, at they're having less voter turnout for Democrats this year than they did in 2016, that tells you the enthusiasm rate is low. So, so what that Joe won or Bernie won? The enthusiasm rate is below that of President Trump. President Trump had a greater turnout here in California. That's where I'm at right now, by the way, with my parents. But I live normally in D.C. in the swamp. I needed to come up for some air for a minute, so I'm here. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I don't mean to take over the whole show here, but, you know, <laughs> when the markets get all itchy about coronavirus, I'm not too worried because the president has been in front of this. Not a day has passed where we haven't heard from the administration. And, you know, when I hear these Democrats speak poorly of the president, they can't attack his economy. They can't can't attack his record low unemployment. They can't attack how he's created jobs. They can't attack the military disability from being able to perform its functions. They can't attack him for creating new wars. You know what? They have nothing. So what do they get? They get name calling because that's all they have left. That's all they got. And you know when the left is in fear, all they can do is call you names. It's like a little kid in the fifth grade just, you know, screaming at you. That's all they've got. So I'm excited. 273,000 new jobs in one month. I dare to say we probably didn't see that in six months under President Obama. Rick, I told you she's she's shy. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, very shy. I'm very shy. <laughs> and, and, where, and just out of curiosity, where in California are you right now, Jesse? Well, I'm up in Sacramento. I'm visiting my 95-year-old parents, and uh, I think the biggest fear out here, uh, when they saw that Bernie Sanders ran won the state, it was no surprise to us. But they do know that the president, that President Trump, is offering sweeping change to California. And here's where I tell every conservative who lives in a blue state: get out and vote. The reason is we must win not only the Electoral College, we must win that popular vote. You can never say my vote doesn't matter because we're going to shove this one back down their throats. He will sweep the popular vote. He will sweep the Electoral College. But if you don't vote and you're in a blue state, you're not helping the popular vote. That's what he has to also win in, even in states where he may not win. Get out there. And I wouldn't be surprised in California because the socialism has driven so many good businesses out. All you have left now are a huge major homeless problem. They had to declare a state of emergency for the coronavirus because they know if that virus gets into one of these homeless camps, it will go like a inferno, and they will have an infestation on their hands. They've got people living in tents with no sanitation, needles and uh, feces and urine in the streets of San Francisco. And what are the Democrats offering to solve that? Nothing. More sanctuary cities where illegals can live 
live and you're sitting in a state that is Reagan country, I call out to all Californians outside of the Los Angeles Democratic cesspool and on San Francisco, get out there and get your voices heard. It's shameful that you let this state turn around. We stand up as conservatives. We fight. We come back. And if you let this state slide away, we only have ourselves to blame because this is a gorgeous state. Anybody who's been here knows that. And it hurts me when I see on Twitter people say, oh, just let it burn away when the fires hit or just let an earthquake hit. First of all, as conservatives, you should never speak ill of anybody, regardless of political party, for death or destruction. We had a city councilwoman in Detroit put out there that she celebrated a woman saying that she wished the coronavirus would hit a MAGA rally. Or she said, if I get the coronavirus, I'm going to a MAGA rally. Are you kidding me? You're a city councilwoman commending that kind of conversation? You have constituents, I guarantee, in your city to support this president. Because the unemployment and driving business and industry out of the motor city that was once one of the great industrial thresholds of this country and now has become a shell of what it used to be. You should be ashamed of yourself. All you guys have, all you Democrats have is nothing but hate because you know that every woman out there that got a job, every African-American that got a job, and Latino who has a job, lowest unemployment ever, is commending this president because you can't do it. You try to say you're the party of diversity and you've got the two oldest men on the face of the earth running for president. My goodness, who's the youngest person now running for president? Donald Trump. <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to what she's saying, Rick. You know, there... I went to the rally here in South Carolina last Friday, which is why it wasn't on the air. Unfortunately, the mainstream media was hogging all of the uh, the band on the um, the internet, and I could not get my equipment up and running, so I couldn't broadcast. But you know, Rick, you can imagine this. You know, being someone in the media, I'm stuck in media the media pit. And you know it's behind the stands where all the cameras are, so you're stuck behind everything. So you got to kind of like creep around to try to watch what's going on. But here I'm in the pit, and I don't know if anyone can look on the camera because I'm up live on Facebook right now. They look behind me. There is a sign that says Cops for Trump, and I'm retired NYPD. So I'm sitting in the, the media pit, and I've got all these sarapuses around me, and my husband and I have the MAGA hat sitting on the table in front of our equipment. And as I'm starting to do the rally, Trump turns around and he says, and he's pointing to the media and going, and fake news. And I grabbed the, the cops for Trump sign from someone sitting in the stands. And I'm standing there in the media pit with the MAGA hat waving the cop for Trump sign. <laughs> I was not very well liked in, the, in that district. So can you imagine that? I, I can't. I'm, I'm in California. That's why I was curious where Jesse uh, James was today. Uh, and, but you, you bring up your reference to the media and brings up uh, another point as I as I wrote in the article. You know how how, uh, how can as it relates to the stock market and the coronavirus, um, as tempting as it is, um, what Wall Street is looking for uh, the president to do is not go out and talk about Whoopi Goldberg or, or Rachel Maddow. You know, the comments of the mainstream media, uh, Chris Matthews, who's no longer with us, of course, but, you know, 
the comments in the mainstream media is not affecting the uh, traders' decisions on Wall Street one bit. They're more sophisticated than that. Um, and, you know, that's one of the questions I get all the time is, is uh, the media affecting the stock market? Uh, the answer is no, not directly, but indirectly. And, again, traders and hedge fund managers want to see the president or the vice president address these concerns head-on on a daily fashion, and uh, that will alleviate their their anxiety, and um, it will remove the uncertainty. And so when the president goes out, and it's very, very tempting, as you know, and from your experience, it's very, very tempting to uh, to go out and, and hammer the media and blame the media on stock prices, but that's that's not helping anything. That that just makes it worse. I uh, I don't I can't agree with that at all. I think well, that the president don't, taking don't, on don't, the criticism don't, don't head it. on. You don't have to agree with it, but it's right. Well, that's I'd like one. to explain why I disagree. No, we all know why you don't. Let me no, you don't. N- number two. I'm Please not letting saying, me finish. Mike, make it quick so she can get her, her point in also then, okay? Yeah, and the only The stock point market out, has had record highs under this administration, and to suggest that he should not be exactly who the American people elected is not a realistic expectation. You cannot sit here and say that this man needs to turn a horse and put him back in the barn after he's already left. This is exactly who the American people elected, and they are tired of presidents that have been Republican, that have been run over by the left, and he's not going to allow a Whoopi Goldberg to make a false statement. He's not going to allow these, these media points that have huge audiences suggest that he has not been a success in the economy, number one, a success with the stock market, number two, and not only that, he's been ahead of the coronavirus. He talked about it today in his press conference, and he's been talking about it every single day. So for us to sit here and now say we don't like how he communicates, how did he win then? How did he win, and how is it he has record-breaking crowds that are supporting him? If you start getting finicky, or I should say if people in general get finicky over the stock market, then you're sitting back and not recognizing the very success under this administration that he has had with the economy, and it's been with this big microphone that he has had. I don't need another George Bush. God bless him, he was great. But because George Bush did not fight back, it allowed the media to run rampant the way it has for the last eight years, getting in the beds of the Democrats and the left, and we never fought back. Yeah, unfortunately, Rick's call had dropped, uh, so we got to do with that, Rick. But, you know, um, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the primary and I'm sorry, my husband and I were watching the results, and as we're watching the results, we see, you know, Bernie Sanders takes, you know, California, uh, Biden takes New Hampshire, and so on and so forth, and they're going down the list, and then they come down to Bloomberg, and out of all the money that Bloomberg, and I, I love this, all the money that he shoved into this election, about half a billion dollars, he put seven full-time employees out in America, Samoya. And the only place that he gets seven electoral votes was out of Samoya. And out of something, I think they said uh, 400, 
40,000 voters in American Samoa and something like less than 4,000 actually voted, something like 1,200 and something like actually voted. So what did he do with these seven full-time employees for a total of seven electoral votes? Jesse, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> no, you can't. The left has actually gone out and tried to imply or suggest in many ways that he's been irresponsible about coronavirus, which is so negligent. People like Bloomberg were in bed with the Chinese and never saw them as a threat. We know from Senator Tom Cotton that he has suggested, doesn't mean it's true, but suggested we have very strong beliefs that there was military, they have the military chemical warfare facility near, what's the name of the city, the Wuhan? It's near there. Wuhan, they wonder yeah. if this is something that got released somehow and activated itself. You know, this came out of nowhere. We've had 35 of 39 months under this president's administration where we've had at least 100,000 new jobs. 35 out of 39 months, 200,000 in each of the last couple of months. And this, and these last two months of the coronavirus that we've been talking about, this is all the Democrats have. I am not worried about the markets. Why? We just saw a record high market not even two days ago. The markets go up, the markets go down. But when you have Democrats actually going out there and lying, saying that he's going to cut entitlements. I heard a woman on Fox News say it today, that he's, he stated in his town hall he will cut entitlements. You know what? That is not true, and they know it. The president has weighed in on that many times. These are not even <clears throat> entitlements. We should, we should recognize that these are hardworking Americans that – earned their social security he is continually talking about growth and i'm tired of democrats making up things to validate themselves and if you're not watching or paying attention or listening to the president yourself it's easy for these people to get out there and make these false accusations jesse yeah it really i got a question brought for up you. a good point Oh, hang on, just you made a good point, Jesse. Because when it comes to Social Security and Medicare, we paid into Social Security, and from that Social Security check that we paid into, and we finally get our return back without interest all these years, we they take money out to pay for Medicare. So I am paying for that insurance that the government guarantees. Yep. I, that was my money that went to Social Security. You owe it. Pay it back to me. So when someone turns around and goes, well, you don't believe in social, socialism and you don't believe in, in, in health care for all, but you get Medicare and you get Social Security. Well, dingbat, I paid for it. It's mine. You paid it's for it. Exactly. And you were forced <laughs> to pay into it. There was no choice in that. Yeah. Absolutely not. So go ahead, Curtis. Well. Donna Brazil went off on a tirade on Fox News last week um, when asked about um, the establishment in the Democrat Party conspiring to, um, you know, get rid of um, Bernie. And she just had a fit and said they don't need to cheat or conspire and this and that and the other and stay, you know, the hell out of our business and you know, isn't this the woman who had a cheat sheet and gave to um, Hillary the questions to the debate? 
Right. No, not even that. It goes a step further. Donna Brazil is a super delegate. Donna Brazil, of course, is going to protect the establishment. For her to be offended because she has a dog in the fight. She is the horse in the race. She's a super delegate. For her to say that there isn't any malignment against Bernie Sanders when she herself deliberately assisted and cheated to help Hillary Clinton dissolve Bernie Sanders is laughable. I will give her a lot of credit. She comes off on television as a pleasant person. She does not come across vile. She does not come across in a reprehensible way, but when you under, and which makes her so convincing, but I'll never, ever forget when she was on Megyn Kelly's show on Fox News about what was that six years ago, and she was being challenged about giving Hillary Clinton the questions, and she denied it. And as I recall, she actually said something to the effect of, I'm a good Christian woman. I thought, you have got to be kidding now that you've thrown down Christ in your statement that has been flagrantly false. You realize if you believe in God, he's listening to you? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I just got a message from Rick that he had to jump off. He had another commitment, so he couldn't stay for the full half hour. But, Jesse, he enjoyed you. He actually had a well, I think he so didn't like, I don't think he appreciated what I was challenging him on with the stock market <laughs> and the suggestion that Donald Trump shouldn't tweet these comments. This is what Donald Trump has done for three and a half years. And guess what? If he was not out there and taking it in the chin for the rest of us, they would come after us. He has clearly said they aren't going after me. They're going after you. And that's what he represents is us. I know for a fact a lot of people may feel uncomfortable with how he comes across on Twitter or his comments, but I would dare to say, but you're awfully comfortable with the economy he's giving you, aren't you? So if you want a fighter in the White House, you have him. If you want a pacifist, then elect Joe Biden, but you're not going to have both. If you want somebody who is going to get out there and not allow people to degrade him, he's not going to sit there and take their cheap shots. And when people get on Fox News who are lefties and tell me or tell us that, oh, he thinks he runs all three branches of government, like Jessica Tarlow said the other day, I say he does. No, he doesn't. He fights back with them the way they have falsified accusations against him. You want him to sit back and let the Congress make those flagrant false allegations that led to how many investigations? We've had the Russia collusion investigation. We've had the obstruction of a justice investigation all under a flagrantly false Mueller report that showed the fake dossier. Moving on, they couldn't get him on that, so they go after Joe Biden. I'm sorry, they go after, that was a Freudian slip. They went after Trump because of Joe Biden's crimes. How did that happen? They're trying to bury their secrets because Joe Biden and was in bed with the Ukrainians trying to protect his little boy, making over $80,000 a month, mind you, for a Ukrainian oil gas company, energy company, I should say, that sole purpose was to 
to lobby the Obama-Biden administration. And not only that, being funded by an oligarch that he himself was committing crimes with deep ties to Russia. Gee, how does it go always back to Russia? It seems to me that the Democrats are deflecting because how many of their own children were working for these various companies? Didn't John Kerry's son have some alignment with these Ukrainian oil companies or energy companies? I know there's some ties there that I read about that these Democrats had their kids embedded because of profit, not for the American people, but for their families. When they complain about Ivanka and Jared Kushner, they've never been accused of crimes. Get it straight, lefties. Those kids were doing dishonest behavior. And not only that, Ivanka doesn't take a paycheck. And what she has done for women empowerment throughout this world and our nation, ensuring that people have been able to get retrained in job skills that have no longer been useful, what she has done for this economy has even surprised me. I had no idea the capability that she would have to generate so much interest in hiring initiatives throughout throughout this country. And that Jared, I didn't even know who he was before the election. But how did we get our Jerusalem, our embassy in Jerusalem that every president had coddled us and lied and said they would do it and never did it? Now our embassy is where the Israeli state recognizes as their capital. And now he's working on the wall and making things happen. I, I'll tell you what, even I was surprised. But they haven't been accused of crimes. That, let's just leave that up to the Bidens because they've padded their pockets. He had his own brother profit off of a housing contract with the military. He had his son make a contract with the Chinese when he was over there, maybe not a contract per se, but was involved in a $1.5 billion deal. No wonder they don't want to see China as a threat because China pads their pockets. These are the politicians that are bought and sold. These are the politicians that gave billions of dollars to Iran, which is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. These are the politicians that couldn't care less about the American people. They only care about their bloodthirsty power. These are the politicians that admonished the president for killing General al-Salmani, who had slaughtered, slaughtered Americans with his IED, slaughtered them, and not those that he didn't slaughter. They lost their legs and arms because the bombs blew up under their vehicles, and they admonished the president because he went after a terrorist assassin who was in Baghdad. Mind you, he's an Iranian. What was he doing in Baghdad right outside? of where our troops are housed. I'll be darned. We have the president with the courage to recognize when it's time to take one out because President Obama was doing his doggone threats all across the Middle East and nobody said a word. He had over 3,000 people killed, over 300 civilians with his uh, one of the uh, drone attacks, and not even in war-torn countries where we belonged. We're talking areas of the world that we didn't even belong. But he didn't have the authority to use military force in any of those countries, and yet you didn't hear a peep out of those Democrats. No, you didn't. Now, I just want to throw over to Curtis. Curtis, you're making a phone call now, correct? Um, I will. Yes. Yeah, please, please do. Uh, <laughs> okay. We were, talk- we were talking about some of the numbers, uh, Jesse, and I was reading these off to my husband, and, you know, uh, God bless my husband. 
I, you have to marry someone that thinks the same way you do. I love this man. But in New Hampshire, for the Democrats, uh, Obama primary in 2012 was supposed to have record numbers. So Obama in New Hampshire garnered in the primary 49,080 votes. Well, Trump in the primary, while everyone was paying attention to Biden, Warren, Bloomberg, uh, Sanders, they were all paying attention to this. And you, you don't hear anyone talking about the fact that there was a Republican primary going on at the same time on Super Tuesday. So 49,000 under Obama, which for a record number in 2012, New Hampshire for Trump went to 129,696. Oklahoma for Obama in 2012, record number, 64,389. Trump this year in Oklahoma, 273,567. Massachusetts, double the number. Tennessee, 80,705 for Obama, record number, 2012. Trump, 2020. Tennessee, 80,000 Democrats, 324,119. Jesse, are we talking about a wave? This is a tidal wave. This is a tsunami. What's happening now, we're seeing that the Democrats can't even get hit the same number of turnout that they did in 2016, period. When you look at the primaries across the board in 2016 compared to the two primaries that are going today, they have low voter turnout, lower, I should say. And yet the president in the primary, mind you, where he is the only candidate on the ballot, is getting a higher voter turnout than we had in 2016, when there were 17 knuckleheads on the ticket. Here we've got one man running on the Republican side, despite is Walsh still in the race? I doubt he's even made many of these state tickets. But aside from that, you have one man running, and he's drawing in more people to his primary. And mind you, they didn't have to show up. They could have stayed at home, and if only 10 people voted for him, he would have had a record turnout. Not a record turnout, he would have won, because he's the only one on the ballot in these states. But when you see a record turnout for the president in a primary, not general election, primary, and in 2016, it's higher than 16. And the opposite for the Democrats. They are dropping a number in their primary of voter turnout. That tells you exactly what you just said. It happened here in California, a phenomenal turnout of conservatives and those independents and those who want to see Trump on win in California showed up aggressively. They have to fight back. I speak out to all these Californians out here. If you want to win, turn up and fight. Curtis, Curtis, put it on. Oh, jeez, Curtis. Uh, so, sorry about that. Um, I'm, my co-host is trying to call someone in here. Here we go. <laughs> I just fixed this for him. Sorry about that, Jesse. You know, the, the Democrats had all these people that, you know, uh, were trying to help Bernie Sanders. You had AOC and Ilhan Omar. Well, guess what? These are people that went out there and had massive crowds to show up for Bernie Sanders. But where were they to vote? 
They didn't show up. Now you're finding one after another. Democrats are being turned off to the Democratic Party and are coming over and becoming Trumps. They're becoming Trumpsters. Even his own daughter finally said, I'm walking away from the Democratic Party. I vanked for Trump registered as a Republican so she could vote in the New York primary. God bless her. Well, what's going on is they tell us how much people dislike President Trump. If that were the case in New Hampshire, they should have had a record high turnout. Instead, their record high was in 2008 when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were on the ballot. So if we are dropping, if they or the Democrats are dropping in number from 2016, that tells you their enthusiasm has diminished. They're not excited about their candidates. And President Trump, on the other hand, is getting many of the people that didn't vote for him in 2016 coming out. People are seeing their 401ks go up. They're seeing their wages. Overall, in this country, we're seeing the median household income climb to $63,000 a year. On average, we're looking at about $2,000 a year per household. We're looking on average anywhere between $1,400 to $1,600 in savings from the tax cuts for the middle class family. You continually hear the Democrats lie and say he made tax cuts for his rich buddies. Not true. The median middle class family on average throughout this nation has had a 1200 to 1400 tax break, dollar tax break, and median household income has gone up $2,000. So you're looking at a net increase of what, over $3,000? That is huge. When you're looking at these things, a voter who could care less what political party somebody is associated with, but knows that things have improved under this president's term is are, is going to show up. They don't want to see a Joe Biden come in who can't even remember what day of the week it is. Yesterday I saw on Twitter somebody say happy Super Thursday as a joke because he he should know it's Super Tuesday. Who doesn't know that? These faux pas, he's offering nothing and they're digging up horrible, horrible comments he has made. If you watched Hannity last night, it was pretty shocking to see these comments he had made about African Americans. But we don't even have to go back that far. When he was endorsing President Obama, he said something to the effect of he speaks well and is clean. That is an unusual thing, something I'm paraphrasing here, but saying we don't see African Americans like this. He speaks well and is clean. Are you kidding me? This was reprehensible. He talked in a way that he was patronizing to women, patronizing to minorities. And I dare to say, you don't have a record of that with President Trump. He looks at everybody as equity because everybody has opportunity and potential to bring something to this economy. And as a businessman, he knows that a room from a, un, a room full of unemployed people is revenue lost. A room full of employed people is revenue gained. That doesn't have anything to do with race, creed, gender, national origin, or whatever class you may fall into. Now we also have record low unemployment for veterans. It is at 2.5%. That's a 37% drop 
from where it was at under President Obama. That is a, a phenomenal data point. I dare to challenge people to give me some numbers that question the economy. The biggest thing we have to improve upon is we need conservatives in the House because our debt and deficit have to get under control. They climbed the most under President Obama, and now this president has a Congress that manages the money that's all Democrat. And to get a budget passed this past year, he has to make compromise because a government shutdown, as we all know, causes a crisis throughout the country. So we have to get past having a Democrat House. People have to get out and vote red all of the way so we can get some functional policies in place that aren't robbing and raping the American taxpayer for everything they have, fleecing them to a point of no return, like Elizabeth Warren would like with her universal health care that would cost, what is it, estimated up to 50 trillion i've heard 33 trillion over 200 million americans would lose their private health insurance under their medicaid for all policies and forget that new green deal my gosh oh i'm sorry we're talking about bernie sanders now he is the proponent <laughs> of medicare for all we're talking about 93 trillion dollars in the green new deal because you know who he would select to be his secretary of who knows what AOC would be right up there with him shoving this all down our throats and we will never get our country back if we destroy it to that level. Well, I think everyone's starting to realize that because, you know, uh, Trump has this uncanny knack without anyone realizing it to do minority outreach. And everyone goes, well, the Republican Party isn't outreaching. Well, what is President Trump doing? He has done more for minorities and for women than any other president I have ever known. But he does it in such a And you know what? Because he's not tooting his own horn and no one's paying attention. The minority. We had record number of Hispanics voting for Trump in the primaries and not voting in the Democratic Party. You had it, the same thing going for blacks and for women. Wait. Well, the, the ultimate, ultimately the reason is is because you're looking at an economy that's putting everybody back to work. And here's some of the reforms that President has drunk, done to assist with minority votes, he has recognized we've had an unfair judicial system that has had extreme sentencing for crimes that had often sentenced people 30, 40 years who were first-time offenders, very extreme. And he has had multiple women, mothers, come to the White House to, who have been able to talk about how he saved their lives with their first-time offenses by granting them clemency. These are people that already served over a decade. When you break apart the African-American family and you encourage to have a recycled up, uh, recycling of children in prisons and jails, what have you done? You're destroying the community. And we have seen the Democrats, they are the ones that run the inner city. They are the ones that have denied African-Americans the opportunity to go to uh, get out of public schools and take choices to have opportunities to go to charter schools, to go to private schools. They have denied that. They run the inner city with an iron fist. Republicans, they, they are not even allowing 
choice for these families. They'll side with teachers' entitlement versus student improvement, which is not the type of public school system that we generations ago had envisioned. But when you destroy the African-American community, you're destroying a part of your society that cannot recover without the support of a president like President Trump. Well, Jesse, you know, you just gave me a perfect segue to my next guest that's waiting in on the line because he's got a new book out called How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. So, Jesse, I want to thank you for joining us. And you know, you're going to be back again. And um, when we hit the 25 mark, the 25 visit here, Mark, then we'll celebrate. You and I will uh, share a glass of scotch or something together. (laughs) How's that sound? Well, thank you so much for inviting me anytime, and I hope I got your listeners fired up and ready to go. We must all show out, show up, no matter where we live, no matter what color your state is, turn it red, vote red, vote for President Trump. Well, God bless, Jesse. People can find you at your name, jessejduff.com, and Semper Fi, Jesse. God bless. Semper Fi. All right, Jesse Jane Duff, check her out. We got our next victim up on the line. Always having fun, always to have a new guest in the show, Michael Petrelli, who's got a great book. You know, the title does sound very, very dry, but I tell you, it is an exciting book to read, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. And Michael, I got to tell you, uh, when I talked to Stefan, I said, Stefan, I can easily sit down and talk to you for a full three hours on this book. But he said he could only do half an hour. So I'm going to do my best shot to try to get through what I want to talk to you about, uh, because this is a near and dear uh, subject. And i got to tell you, I run a tea party here in South Carolina. And last month, we had our school superintendent in at the tea party meeting. And he was really surprised on the different manners in which we were asking him questions. And a lot Mm -hmm. of what we asked is directly in line with these essays that are written in the book here. That's great. See, it's it's not so dry after all. It's great to be with you on your show. (laughs) It it is a pleasure. Now, the book you had, you compiled, because you're you're the one that edited it, Um, it's a series of essays. And what I liked about it is that each person, and not because sometimes two people wrote the essays together, but each essay presents a unique perspective and problem that they see in our education system. And they present the problem, they break it apart, they show the history of it, show why it's destroying our society, and then they offer the solutions, which I love. A lot of people are so willing to say, well, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and offer no solutions. This this book does. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And it's an amazing lineup of authors, as you know, uh, leading conservative thinkers, intellectuals, uh, mostly mostly writers who think about broad social policy, not, not educrat types, though there are a few uh, former education secretaries in there like Bill Bennett and Rod Page. Uh, and, and the point here was to ask these these thinkers, hey, tell us, those of us uh, in the education reform world, which is where I come from, you know, now that it feels like ed ref- education reform feels stuck, uh, for lots of reasons we can talk about, uh, where should we go next? And are there some things we've been overlooking? And it was really fascinating to see where they went. As you said, they lots of different perspectives, but also some common themes that came out. A lot of it is common sense. And a lot of it, you know, having grown up in the school system in the 60s and 70s, I saw the changes. I saw where yeah. it 
Well, some of the essays talk about going as far back as the 1950s, uh, but we saw the changes. And, you know, the biggest one I saw is when they started to introduce sex education. And, of course, you know, everyone's going, well, the kids have to learn about diseases, and they have to learn about the human anatomy, so how to, what to expect is they start to go through puberty. And that's how they brought it up. Boy, has it changed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, and look, that is certainly one of the, the themes that came up in this book is about how do we teach kids about issues around uh, character, morality, right and wrong. Uh, you know, the the left has a very strong perspective on what that should look like. And when we give them control of the public schools, uh, they kind of go crazy. <laughs> they push for some pretty, pretty crazy stuff. But that's on us. Uh, we conservatives, look, we need to stand up. Uh, and we need to show up at school board meetings and ask questions uh, and find out how things are being taught. And if we don't like what we see, we need to let our voices be heard. Uh, you know, one of the uh, couple of the chapters in here talked about uh, touched a little bit on the sex ed question. They they talked about the so-called success sequence, and this is the research-based approach to not being poor in America. And it it really works. It's uh, almost impossible to be poor in this country if you do four things in this order. Finish your education, number one. Number two, get a full-time job. Number three, uh, get married. And number four, start a family. If you do it in that order, uh, you will be in the middle class or beyond. And uh, several of the folks in this book said, look, we've got to start teaching young people about this. If we're going to teach sex ed, we should teach them. And we're going to you know, tell them to go to college, go to college. We should also tell them, look, if you want to be successful and if you want your own kids to have an opportunity – uh, then you need to wait uh, to not have kids until you're ready for that. And that's not such a crazy idea, but it's not judgmental for us to say that uh, to young people. Uh, and there's actually a couple of charter schools in New York City where they are trying this out as we speak uh, to try to make sure young people actually know about the success sequence and know what it means uh, to be successful in America. Well, you just said something that is one of the points I have here. And I actually have like three pages of notes for all my guests to <laughs> And you take up about a page and a half. Um, yeah. One of the reoccurring themes I noticed in the book is that we can't debate how and what to teach unless we build upon the founding blocks of self-discipline and strong inner character. The original purpose yeah. of the public school system. When we started the public school system, that was the original purpose because the founding fathers believed that unless you have good moral character, you cannot be a good citizen. And you can't be a good right. citizen unless you have restraint and discipline. Right. No, I mean, look, they, you know, the, the founders believed in democracy, but they also worried about the, the rule of the mob, right? And they thought that the only way this was going to work, uh, to have people control their own affairs – uh, you know, in, in a democratic republic was for people to be well-educated, and that first and foremost meant having strong moral character. You know, babies come out today the exact same way they did 100,000 years ago, <laughs> you know, uncivilized, <laughs> and it's up to us to turn these little barbarians uh, into human beings that, you know, that, that are part of our society and, and eventually a part of democracy. So, you know, a huge part of the book is what does it mean to prepare young people for citizenship? Uh, and that's something that I, I will say some of us in ed reform have taken our eye off that ball. We've been so focused on college and career and, and basic skills like reading and math, all of which is important. But, of course, uh, you know, it, the, the most important thing is 
proper pre preparation for citizenship. That starts with teaching our history, teaching it in a way that is is both patriotic and critical. You know, we don't want to be North Korea. We don't want to some you know whitewashed history where we pretend everything in this country has been fine and dandy all the way back, because of course it hasn't. But we also don't want to teach a type of history that tells uh, kids that America is nothing but this horrible, racist, oppressive country and has been for 300 years, which is what they are getting in a lot of schools when it's the left that controls the history curriculum. Now, you just put, stepped right into the point I have sitting here talking about the chapters, number one chapter written by Jonah Goldberg. And the point was that we are allowing history to be rewritten. The point yeah. is to shut up our voices. We've got radical historians out there rewriting histories. When we have the book, History of the World, being taught to kids in, in junior high and high school that dedicates page upon page upon page to Islam and only half a page to Christianity and half a page to Judaism, and where are any of the other religions such as the American Indian? That's not even in the history books anymore. Yet, they are the oppressed members of society. But we're the bad white guys. Why aren't we teaching all of history, true history, good, bad, mm -hmm. and in between? But no, they'd rather whitewash it. We as Americans are always, always the evil ones. So you are conservatives, you Republicans, sit down and shut up. We know better than you, and we'll teach your kids the way we think they should learn, not the way that you feel they should be taught. Yeah, and, and, and look, you know, as kids get older, as, as you say, into middle school and high school, we want them to wrestle with the big issues in our contemporary society and in history. And, you know, in the public schools, it's important for young people to get both sides of the story, you know, and, and to be uh, and not to be pushed in one direction or the other. But, you know, the, the worry is that that's simply not happening, that that the, the education system has this very leftward tilt. Uh, and again, if, if conservatives aren't asking questions, uh, then, you know, this is what we get. Now, the good news is decisions like which history textbook to use, those decisions are still made locally. Uh, and so folks can show up at the local school board meeting and, and ask questions. Now, in a place like South Carolina, you know, those school boards are, you know, those, those districts, your districts are so big, countywide districts. So, it, it, you know, in some places you go to a school board meeting, it's a, you know, group of your neighbors and friends and, you know, the, the, the whole district is a thousand kids. That may not be the case where you are, but you can still show up at these places and, and let your voices be heard. And I think it's great that you said the Tea Party is making sure that the state superintendent and others know that you've got questions and that you're watching. Well, you know, I have to tell you, um, I am not a shy or quiet one, and I have shown up at the school board meeting. And matter of fact, um, they decided at one point that uh, – they had an uneven number of people on the school board so that when they voted, uh, they had some sort of weird common core math that a person could be counted as less than a full vote. And I showed up with a sign saying that this is not common core math, and I sat behind the current, uh, not the current, but the previous uh, school superintendent, and mm -hmm. I placed my business card in front of him, and I must have been about maybe six feet away from him with my sign about Common Core Math in the school board, which was a rather clever sign. I'm sorry I didn't keep it. And he just kind of like looked at my business card, 
took it, flipped it over his shoulder, upon which, Michael, I made a little bit of a show of laughing my butt off and sitting there going, I'm so hurt. Oh, my goodness. I am so devastated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my school board rep, <laughs> some of them were looking at me smiling and laughing because they know me mm-hmm. and they know I'm a clown. But you do have to be engaged. And, you know, uh, what I say is when I tell people to do it, don't get yourself up in a ladder. When you do go in there, know what you want to say. Be precise and make yourself clearly understood. But don't go in angry and in a heat. But talk to Mm -hmm. them in a reasonable manner. And nine times out of ten, you'll start to see the heads nod and go, gee, maybe she's making a salient point. So when you do go to these school boards, don't go as if you're on a crusade, but you have a point to make and you want to convince them that you're right. Yeah, no, I think that's really, I think that's really good, uh, good advice, you know. And and look, uh, on a lot of these issues in the book, uh, we should be able to find some common ground. I mean, some of these issues are tough if we're talking about, say, you know, okay, history. How are we going to teach things uh, in our past that, that are very relevant to today? That that can get very dicey. But other things, I, I think most Americans, for example, they want kids to learn the difference between right and wrong. Uh, there's broad agreement on what that means across different religious faiths and other kinds of traditions. This, this shouldn't be you know, so hard. Uh, you know, another issue a couple of the chapters focus on is discipline. You know, this is really where character gets taught in the schools. It's it's all the whole, you know, watch what we do, not what we say. How do the adults in the school respond when kids misbehave, especially if, if they're hurting uh, somebody else? Uh, you know, is there, uh, are those kids held accountable? There's this crazy idea circulating right now that says, well, we shouldn't discipline kids. You know, that's unfair. Uh, it can even be racist. You know, instead we should have kids sit around in a circle and talk about their feelings and, and uh, do these restorative justice uh, circles and ask for forgiveness. And uh, rather than make it very clear that, hey, you know, you broke the rule, here's the punishment. And the point is, first of all, we're going to make sure this place is safe and it's, a, and it's a disciplined learning environment. And second, we're going to help the child who might be unruly learn how to behave better because we want we believe in them we believe they can meet high standards for behavior we're not going to have a low uh, soft bigotry of low expectations and yet these these ideas these crazy fads that go through our schools that suddenly everybody in education decides that discipline is is bad i mean i i think most parents democrats or republicans would look at that and say what are you talking about that's nuts and so uh, we can bring some people along on these issues now, this is one of the other things, is discipline in the school. And we had a problem with the previous you know, school superintendents where that when the kid is disciplined and then the parent goes not to the teacher or to the principal to complain, the parent went directly to their school board rep. And the next mm-hmm. thing you know, the school board is now reprimanding the principal and the teacher and siding with the parent. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the parent's going to vote for them. Instead of saying, mm-hmm. well, maybe you're right, maybe my child needs discipline, it was an upside down. This is now starting yeah. to reverse in our community. But I, it brings me into a point where in Chapter 3, Robert uh, George writes about the, what I call the herd mentality. You know, kill off any dissent and fight it uh, versus the golden rule with uh, the truth thinking project that he talks about. You know, it, with a herd mentality, you have it where it's, parents are always right. My child's never bad compared to what the actual truth is. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And 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 look, you know, we the the goal is, you know, it's not to label a kid as bad, you know, but the behavior is bad, and we want to help them uh, get what they need to to start, you know, meeting high standards while they're still in school, while and while they're still kids, and while the you know the consequences are not so dire, you know, once they get into that real world. Uh, they're not going to be sitting in a circle talking about their feelings. You know, if if they hurt somebody, uh, the consequences are going to be much greater. So, uh, so again, we we can bring people around on on this issue. Well, Michael, uh, it looks like our time is up. I wish I had more time. You know, tell Stephanie you want to do a little bit more time because there's so much more to talk about in this book and how we can take our education system back. It is a very valuable book. Matter of fact, I'm going to be sending uh, information over to my new school superintendent, who happens to be fantastic, came out of Palm Beach and did a turnaround uh-huh. with that district down in Florida, and now he's doing it to ours. Mm-hmm. And I gave him a couple of ideas already, which he's already implementing. Um, your book, I think, should be a handbook for every single school district within our nation. Michael, it's great. How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's School. It's up on Amazon. It came out, I believe, last week, correct? That's correct. That is correct, yes. And right. uh, well, fantastic. Well, hey, really appreciate you having me on the show. I'd love to come back sometime. Well, absolutely. Tell Steph in more than half an hour. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks so much. Good. Take care. God bless. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Michael Petrelli, a nice Italian boy, as my grandmother would say, a nice Italian boy. I do believe that this is our friend down in Texas with a real Texas drawl, Mark Sutherland. Good afternoon, Mark. Hello. Hello, Anne. Um, and it's, uh, I don't have my Texas drawl. I have my London accent, <laughs> um, having uh, temporarily been in here in this uh, in the wonderful uh, state of uh, of Texas, where I am for a few a few days, so it's uh, it's wonderful to be home. Actually, it's wonderful to be home in your nation. So thank you. Well, now you got to make it a permanent home. You got to do that soon. You know, we well, need we need that, you here. Well, that may happen, <laughs> and and very it's very very kind of you, and I thank you for your encouragement on that. It's. In all seriousness, it's such a delight where I land in this great nation and I can just pick up the phone um, and uh, talk to so many friends of mine here, which is incredible. And uh, the freedom to do that and express the ideas that we all passionately believe in. Well, unfortunately, in England, you now have a clampdown on freedom of speech. You would think the land that gave us the Magna Carta, uh, that gave us English common law under King Harold, that you would think that land, if anything, would have protected our our basic freedoms and liberties given to us by the grace, by God, not by man, but are now being taken away by man. That you would well, think I, that even I, England yeah. would give you freedom of speech. Well, you raise uh, you raise a very very good, a profoundly important question, and I think at the end of the day, one of the reasons why that is so under attack is that, to me, from a spiritual point of view, is the the enemy goes to the root, and it goes to the root of it. But but this has to do with this also has to do with Europe. It has to do with our participation for uh, you know forty six forty seven years within this uh, EU, EU construct of a totally socialist construct um, and uh, the fact that you, there is no 
In our case, we are a democracy. You are a constitutional republic. But there is no democratic mandate. You cannot vote for the people, the 26 commissioners or whatever, that actually oversee the EU whatsoever. We have been part of this and we are now out. But as we look at we look at history, maybe we have time to discuss some of that, we can see the influence and we can see why these things have actually happened. Yeah, because you put out a film recently, actually it's about a year or two old, called The Iris Echo. And, mm. you know, you were having problems getting it out, you know, to the public and everything. Now it's out there, it's distributed. So it's not a long film, it's like about 25 minutes long, but it's a powerful, powerful film and you invoke uh, visions of Soviet Russia and yes. behind the Iron Curtain on East Germany and what it actually was like before they ended up having the wall come down. It's still not total freedom, but it's very mm-hmm. easy to fall back into it. And when we're looking at our election cycle and we're looking at someone like Bernie Sanders out there, if he were ever to be elected, we would fall into this very trap that you depict the Iris Echo. Absolutely. And I'm I'm, thank you very much for your really kind words and encouragement. And yes, with uh, the Iris Echo finally is on my friend's website. I'm frantically building a new one. So we can get that out there. And of course, it is a warning. It's a 22 minute drama. It's a warning, warning about communism. It is, it, is in, it is in your face. And you quite rightly raise a really, really important issue. Who would have ever thought that the land that actually has the constitution, you know, of 1787 written then, um, you, who would have thought that uh, the land of the free um, is prepared to actually vote in Bernie Sanders, an an avowed uh, communist, a man that goes and has his honeymoon in Moscow, you know, uh, sort of speaks about the delights of Cuba, Venezuela and all this kind of thing. And that we have people in this great nation that are prepared to vote for him. And then we look wider. We look at uh, Elizabeth Warren, Atal, Biden, you know, Buttigieg, I know, has just dropped out. But in the past, people like Kamala Harris, uh, Better O'Rourke, Beta O'Rourke, and all the rest. I mean, the litany of these people is just unbelievable, the quality of these people in the fact that they all are swallowing socialism or saying that big government is the answer. This is totally against, to me, against the American dream and what you actually stand for. And the president of the United States has always been seen as president of the free world, of the West. And we are seeing the asymmetric attack upon this. So my little film is a warning about totalitarianism. I mean, Annie, the key, the key thing is it's a very, very interesting book written. Um, I've talked about this today a few times by uh, Rupert Darwell called Green Tyranny. And the, he says at the beginning of his book that the piece of paper written in the 1700s is the, is, the last, is the last line of defense against the totalitarian push that is going on across the world. And that piece of paper is your constitution. Um, that is what, it, what he's actually talking about and referring to. And, of course, in the 17, 1700s, there were two revolutions, one with, with God, 1776 and then the French Revolution I believe around about 1789 
without God. And we look at all the different things that have come out of that, that philosophy within France, and then that has invaded the EU. There is a huge connection here. And my film, which ends with stock footage from the 1956 Hungarian uprising, is a warning to all of this. This is not that long ago. If we talk about the Hungarian uprising, we talk about Oban running Hungary. You know, this is really, really important European history as it is important European history, which is against defending against the Ottoman Empire and the, and the uh, armies of Islamic jihadism, if it's in that pure form of a political ideology. And my film is raising the warning about totalitarianism. And that is what all this is about. Fail to realize is the connection of Islam to socialism and communism. Yes. Now, yes. World War II, you had the Grand Mufta of, of Jerusalem that was Hitler's advisor. They even gave Hitler Islamic SS Waffen troops. And believe it or not, in World War I and World War II, Muslims fought at the side of Germans. And in, in Russia, when it came to the terrorists being trained from the Middle East, the Palestinians, Hezbollah, and all the other groups would send them to Moscow to be trained under the Soviet communism and then sent mm. back into the mm. Middle East and the rest of the world to commit their acts of terrorism, trained courtesy of the communist Soviets. Absolutely. And here is another key thing, because we're all, as we talk about that, we're all observing this right now. We're observing the fact that um, Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, is now, is now releasing more immigrants, not refugees, immigrants, out of Turkey um, to uh, go onto the Greek islands. The threat is of up to a million. And, of course, the EU has paid, has built a wall from Turkey to the rest, rest of the world at that point. But if we then go to an incredible book written by Batayor in 2006 called Eurabia, and in there she talks about the fact that in 2003, uh, George Bush, your president at that time, then asked France to, um, to recognize, to say that Hamas is a terrorist organization. They didn't want to do it. If you then follow the train of thought here, where you have the Arab League in junction with the European Union in junction with the Palestinian authorities, creating an anti-American feeling massively, anti-Israel feeling, pro-Palestinian, saying that it's America's, um, it's America's policies in the Middle East, it's Israel's policies in the, East, the Middle East that is creating all this, uh, all this hurt and upset. But if you go back to the fact that the border with Jordan was never properly, uh, never properly recognized, etc. So as soon as the nation of Israel was created, all the Arab states around thought that it was, you know, they had to wipe it off the face of, face of the earth. So we go through that. But we then have to go, we then have to go further. We have to then uh, discuss um, the fact that, um, as this book lays out and other people lay out, the fact that, uh, you know, Jerusalem 
uh, in Christian, was Christianized. And then under Islamic armies, is taken over. So in 1090, the Pope turns around and says, well, how, how you know, fellow to a bunch of Christians, how are you going to let your brothers and Christian brothers and sisters continue to suffer in Jerusalem? We need to free it. So then we have the Crusades, which we get criticized for within the politically correct diatribe that goes on, not discussing that four or 500 years before that, 600 years before that, are jihadist acts. The fact that we then have to look at, and you're an expert on this, so I'm not going to teach you to suck eggs, but the fact is we have to look at, in regard to the Prophet Muhammad, in regard to what he then did, and as he comes out of Medina, he then goes to Mecca, as the wonderful, wonderful Bridget Gabrielle lays out within five minutes this whole history in regard, you know, in regard to Acts for America. She lays all this out. And turned around and says, as Mohammed goes to a Jewish, a Jewish business hub, he's still not able to convert people. So the only way they're converting was through threatening violence. So suddenly this goes through the whole of Eastern Europe, etc. And then we then look at all of this. This then later on becomes embedded as an ideology and a philosophy within the European Union as it looks towards Arabia. And let's just remind ourselves of the American Barbary Wars. You know, I think Thomas Jefferson then, I think, was your president at the time, turning around and thinking, well, I'm going to have to read the Quran because why are our commercial shipping being attacked in the Mediterranean? And he then asked the jihadists who were actually doing this. And they said, well, we follow the Quran. You are the infidel. This is what it says. So he then creates your Royal Marines to defend commercial traffic and as their as their song says on the way to Tripoli and the fact that their their uniforms had leather collars to protect them from scimitars that are going to come down on their head and try and chop them off all of this history is all in there and we look at Europe in regard to 1683 at the gates of Vienna and trying to stop the the Islamic army that is then attacking Europe Unfortunately, that happened. Then you go back to another battle of the uh, naval battle of uh, Guadeloupe, etc. Gate of Tours. This is all relevant. This is all relevant now. And um, coming up today, as I said in 2003, we look at the early 2000s and the fact that there was not a recognition as Batayor lays out in a book. The denial of anti-Semitism within Europe, the denial that these jihadist acts were going on. Oh, no, 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 you know, it's like grievance and all this. We have just had on the streets of London, last November we had a, an awful attack where a, a, a prisoner, basically a man who had been put in prison uh, for doing uh, an act under the ideology of Islam, he then uh, said, oh, I'm, I'm want to go on this special uh, training where I'm going to be de-radicalized. He wasn't de-radicalized. He then went out and stabbed two other young people. We then had another incident um, a couple of months ago in uh, South London, and this particular individual was dragged, dra uh, pulled down, was gunned down, because he was being followed by police, police, our police officers at the time. Now, we potentially could have up to 3,000 people in this regard. And each individual, each individual case of this, they need about 30 policemen to follow each individual per person like this. If you say there's 3,000, you times that, and then you get to a figure of 90,000 
police would be needed just to follow this particular ideology and crime and outrageous acts that these people do. I mean, this is unbelievable, Annie, that is happening within our own country and that is happening within Europe. And within Europe, France and Germany, we've seen that in 2015, there was a denial, there was an embedded ideological denial that there was a problem with people that follow the full tenets of, of, uh, of political Islam, of that. And it's a discussion that we are having, that we have to have. And we are bordering on our own Michael Flynn moment at the moment within our own country. And you could ask me about that. I can explain. So we are in a very, very serious position. And ideology is being challenged. You know, it, it's funny because prior to Trump coming to office, we would hear about, you know, CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood yeah, doing yeah. various actions all throughout the United States. Trump is now in office and suddenly they're quiet. They're just waiting. They're, they're not, they haven't left. They've just no. sat a little dormant, just sitting back going, listen, he's going to get out of office and you're going to get numb that's like a Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Buttigieg or any one of those mm. whack jobs in there. Yeah. And we can come yeah. forward because we can then run rushed over the rest of the country. Absolutely, and, and we we have to follow this. We have to follow the ideology of the uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood as a a terrorist organisation. And to say that, we've now got a situation back at home in, in the UK where our present Home Secretary is under attack. Priti Patel is under attack now. Priti Patel, who I've had the privilege to listen to uh, publicly speak, Priti is under attack. Her heritage; she comes from an Indian background. She is self-made. She has not followed any left-wing grievance gender. And she is Home Secretary. And she has actually said we may need to look at bringing back hanging from people that we don't have that kind of thing um, uh, in regard to looking at if they're going to commit certain treasonous terrorist acts on our streets, then we need to uh, hang them. Um, Civil servants are are absolutely having a fit over the questions that she is asking. There's supposed to be a report on the grooming gangs that was supposed to be released. It hasn't been released. And what we've found is that the Muslim Council of Britain, and that would refer to me, even discussing these issues with you, that suddenly report me as some, uh, you know, whatever bigoted per. Oh, yeah, in regard to Islamophobia. No, I don't have any uh, phobias about Islam because I fully understand and I will distinguish between those that want to follow the full tenets of Islam and those Muslims, and very often a lot of them, you know, they don't understand their book. They don't follow. They don't behave like that. But we have a group of people that do, and the ideology is takeover. It's political takeover. So the left are happy to do this because they want to undermine the Judeo-Christian culture of, of the West of our nation, of your nation. So we're finding that this is coming out, that I believe this is our General Flynn moment, because we have forgotten how to run our own country since 1973. We haven't run our own country since 1973. And I will explain, because people might think, well, what do you mean, Mark? Well, we haven't, we, we have, we lost the sovereignty. We gave up the sovereignty of our nation in 1973. 
T3. In doing that, we gave up our fishing waters. We gave up right, rights to all of that. And um, we then we then gave up the right to our to our borders. And as I was explaining, in regard to the political ideology of Islam, then you now see now at this point what is actually what is actually happening. So the Home Secretary wants to, um, as the government does, because of the the uh, mandate that they were given by the people, and the 12th of October. 12th of December last year, Boris Johnson became our Prime Minister. He, uh, well, he, he was re-elected as our Prime Minister with a big majority, an 80-seat majority within the House of Commons. But slightly going back, remember that we voted to leave on June the 23rd. You know, 17,410,752 people with a majority of over a million voted out to leave the EU, when we joined, it was a common market. People thought that they were joining in a common market with six other countries so that there would be no trade barriers in, which, in regard to trading. But it was always designed as politically a monetary union. It was always designed to create this federalist state. Now, I, we may not have time to go through some of the history of that because it's extremely nefarious, and I'm afraid to say that it does involve uh, America and certain American uh, institutions that uh, we wonder why we don't have control of, which is the CIA. And I am not making any of this up. Now, the thing is, the European Union is actually the Fourth Reich, and I can come back in history and talk about that with you if you so want and explain all of that. But we are at a point where... Going back to the Home Secretary, going back to the fact that we need to flush out our civil service, which is our equivalent of the deep state, which is what the President of the United States is dealing with every single minute of the day. And we are finding this. We need to go through and get rid of civil servants that are not willing to put forward the mandate of the people that they voted for their particular, the particular government of Boris Johnson to do. We have seen... We've never seen this in history. If you take parliamentary seats in Yorkshire, like Sedgley, that have always been in the hands of the Labour Party, and our Labour Party being led by, at the moment, till he goes, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is an out-and-out communist. I mean, again, we have the parallels. We have people veeing the position of the Labour Party who are totally extreme, a bit, uh, totally like your Democrats over here. So we have got to flush out our own civil servants who think they have a right to run the country. How dare, that, how dare we, after being given a referendum, actually vote to leave a socialist construct. You may look at the television and see that there's a European parliament, but it's a joke. They don't vote on legislation. They're just told what to vote through. They don't say, well, we can't stop this legislation. The whole thing is, a, is to create one big federalist state. And as you know, the European Union is a leg of global governance. And one of the amazing joys and privileges of coming over here to, to the United States and the people that I mix with, you have a full understanding of the UN and that it's there to create global governance. You have a full understanding that, that all of those movements are about getting rid of the Constitution of the United States 
and uh, whether whether we say that it, we're on the lifeline here, I believe we are, as corporocracy and all this kind of thing, and creating technocracy to take what China is up to and bring it over here. But we are in a very um, we're at a very very dangerous pivotal pivotal point, and there is a huge fight going on between nationalism and globalism, and this is going on around the world. That's why within 19 minutes of President Trump becoming, going from Donald J. Trump to, to president, within 19 minutes, the Democrats were starting, you know, to talk about impeachment with your fifth column, which uh, the fifth estate, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, the, the press and, uh, and actually turning against the American people and what it all represents and the whole programming every time you switch on cnn i mean it drives me completely insane because i i am shocked <laughs> that people i'm shocked that people i mean i watch it when i'm over here if i'm in, at the airport i mean it's the only thing that keeps them going i think financially because i have a contract for that but you, you watch it you're sitting there <laughs> i was watching it you know this morning um when i was doing another interview in utter disbelief because i'm going are people believing this garbage they're actually believing this garbage. Um, there is, well, you know, there is no uh, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you though, because the only rating CNN gets is that when you go into a business office that has TV on, nine times out of ten, CNN or NBC or MSNBC, you know, very, very rarely will you see Fox. The only ratings they get is from doctors' offices, other, you know, service offices, and airports. Because they're the only ones that are tuning into it. So if you look at CNN ratings and then compare it to Fox News, and actually you've got OAN, OAN News and Newmax, Newsmax rising, yeah. they're taking yeah. all the, that viewership away from MSNBC, CNN, and every other left-wing fake news you can think of. So that's the only ratings they're getting. That's the only reason why they're still in business. But, Mark, I told you about another gentleman that we're bringing on to the show. He's just called in. I want to introduce to you a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Dan Perkins. Dan Perkins, please meet Mark Sutherland. Mark Sutherland, please meet Dan Perkins. Good afternoon, Hi. sir. I've been, listening to, I've been listening to your comments. That's very kind of you, Dan, and it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. So thank you very much indeed. I uh, I, I do have a little uh, comment for you. Um, I uh, I do somewhere between forty and sixty interviews a month, and I write wow. for twenty different blogs, and I have four syndicated radio shows, and do some wow. television. All conservative. And I, I need to point out one thing to you and to Annie. We, we understand what's going on in the country, and you understand what's going on in Britain. Yeah. But even though Fox News gets great ratings, the physical audience size of the mainstream media is much greater than the physical audience size of Fox News. And so what I, tr I keep trying to tell people, because you talk to another conservative and you have a great conversation about the problems in Britain or the problems in the United States, keep in mind there's a, gr a much greater number of people who don't get their news and their commentary 
from Fox News. They get it from ABC, NBC, yeah. CBS, yeah. CNN, MSNBC, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Mm. So we, we have to be careful that we don't get so comfortable in our belief in Donald Trump mm. that we ignore the power of the mainstream media. I couldn't, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'd like to throw in a comment. I don't know if you have noticed that in regard to Fox News, you know, they, at times they've called your country a democracy. And every time they do that, oh. I, want to throw, I want to throw a brick at the television <laughs> and go, excuse yep. me, excuse me. You know, we're, I'm not reliant, and Dan, you, you've said it, and if I may say so, being outside your country... And, and very passionate about your country. I care very much. Um, I have some wonderful, wonderful dear friends over here and I'm, I'm often over here. The, the key issue is this, is that if that's the kind of education that, that's going on, and yes, you're absolutely right. The, 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 for the left, it would be wonderful if they just push us into an echo chamber where we're not able to reach out over the barrier and to engage with people. But the problem is, for some of us, we've tried to do that, and these people are so have so much swallowed the Kool-Aid. Are, at times, are so rude, and I and I call it a big, a big spiritual deception as well. The Bible is very clear about that. I'll hand you over to your own delusion, and we are in such a spiritual battle, um, and we are at war, you know, and we need to be praying through these things. But to engage people and say. Could you look at the other side? I mean, I'll give you an example. In 2016, when uh, D- Donald Trump was elected as president, and um, I remember one so-called friend of mine, who is not a friend of mine now, just said, well, Trump's a Nazi, Trump's this, Trump's that. And I'm going, excuse me, could you? And I, listen, I've, seen, I've been to one of the rallies. I was at one of the, his rallies in Cincinnati. It was a pleasure. It was an absolute joy to go. And, and there was a, a lady there had a fantastic T-shirt, and on it it said, "Jesus is my Lord, and Trump is my president." It's not about the worship of Donald Trump, and I, it was great that this was in the right order. I'm really, really glad that he is there because he's exposed your deep state. He's exposed what we're dealing with. But this is also a shocker that that you go to talk to these people, Dan. And they come with feelings and not with facts. That's true. Yeah. But I, 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 I want to invite you, when you have some spare time, to go to a new website that I've just launched. Mm. And it's, it's called the Jezebel Hunter. And go on. Wow. If, if you, the website is thejezebelhunter.com. If you think about, if you read the scripture and you yeah. understand that, that Jezebel, who was married to a king of Israel, yeah. uh, was a very, very, very evil person. She killed yeah. 450 prophets. And yeah. she was a terrible, terrible person. And I believe that's, that her, her, her um, approach to dealing with the issues of, of her time was driven by the devil. Mm-hmm. And so what we, we have this 
the realization of the Jezebel came to me about six weeks ago because I saw Vice President Pence being interviewed by Sean Hannity. And Sean Hannity asked him a question, which is a question that I've wrestled with for three and a half years. What has happened to the Democratic Party that it became pure evil? I believe the Democratic Party is now under the control of the Jezebel spirit. And, I, and, and on the Jezebel Hunter website, JezebelHunter.com, is an essay, actually a short story, on the history of the Jezebel and current Jezebels in power in the United States. And I heard a gentleman this week, when you, he described Nancy Pelosi as evil. Mm-hmm. Use the word mm-hmm. to describe her as evil, mm-hmm. and and the subtitle of this piece, it's on the JezebelHunter.com, is the battle of good and evil in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why we we are we're a divided nation. We're divided mm-hmm. good versus evil. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. is that the evil don't realize that they're how much they've manipulated. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I I am quite. I'm quite astounded to, but I think it's absolutely incredible that you have created a website like that because because the whole discussion of Jezebel and narcissism, narcissism yes. to me, and this is all coming out. I, I seem to be dealing with this and having this discussion amongst close friends all the time because it's reflected also, sadly, in some of their relationships and what they're dealing with. So if we take narcissism, this whole worship of self, it's all about me, and we see what um, the social stuff has done, whether that's on Facebook, Instagram, bloody blah, blah, we see all that and take a selfie. But this is a abs- it's as though narcissism is Jezebel on speed. It is just massive. And we have got the same, uh, exactly right, we've got the same at, at home, and I'm, this is a ter- this is a terrible indictment, but quite rightly, as as the Bible says, as God says, you know, judgment starts in the house of God, and I seem to find that, you know, within the church at home, you know, I don't really read scripture where it it doesn't seem to talk about, you know, diverse, diversity and tolerance and inclusion, it doesn't talk about any of those things, but churches <laughs> in church policy. In church policy are talking about those things. So it's as though the world has invaded the church instead of the church, or as Christians, invading the world. And now, there is one of the reasons I'm at this conference, I'm at here, the Watchman Conference in Dallas, and some of these issues um, we are discussing. There are people discussing. You know, I'm uh, um, a quick sort of plug, and you should interview him, but one of my uh, one of my friends, uh, uh, Dave Doublemire, Coach Dave Doublemire, he was recently pulled up, and made a mockery of on, I think, on the Colbert show, because he's an ex-football coach, and he saw the um, NFL, you know, entertainment at halftime, and he he just he said we ought to sue the NFL. This is outrageous. Bunch of young people seeing this pornographic stuff. In other words. He has done a number of things. It's a bit like with Target. He cost Target 
the company millions because he objected to their same-sex bathrooms and took his grandchild along and said, well, I won't be able to use these loos anymore and Target made a little film. In other words, what I'm saying is, is this is how all of us have to step up and push back and raise, all the, raise awareness of this. So where, where is that going on in the UK? That's one thing. Where is that going on here? Instead of saying, well, someone else is doing it, or we'll leave it to, or we'll give it to, you know, we'll leave it to James Dobson to do, or we'll leave it to this organisation to do. And while they're doing that, the left, you know, the evil, Satan, has been corralling us, and I include myself in that, into a corner while he has then run amok. And, of course, various churches are concerned about I uh, say it, let's go there. They're 5013C and all this kind of thing and being bought off and not actually speaking out about important issues and what's going on in this country. And the same yeah. in the UK. The same in the UK. Well, and I'm sorry if that seems an unpopular comment to make. Well, guys, I, think uh, if I you've just got... want to point out, what, Dan, I just want to point out because one of the things you mentioned to me is the problem you have with your church. But I never told you what's going on with mine. There is a huge, huge rift between the Anglican area of the Episcopal Church and the Episcopal Church. It is a major lawsuit here in South Carolina. If you just Google Episcopal Church and Anglican Church, South Carolina, it is finally going to maybe a final judgment where the Episcopal Church wants to have same-sex marriage, gay ministers, and everything else, and they're going the Jezebel way. And we are staying true to scripture in ours. And it got so bad that the, the Episcopal Church said they, she would rather see our church that was established and built in 1712 turned into a mosque rather than remain with us as an Anglican church. That is how bad it is, Dan. Yeah, and, and if, you, um, if our guest, when he goes to the JezebelHunter.com, You'll see on the first page uh, a box that outlines uh, uh, about eight or nine uh, traits of a Jezebel. And, and one of the traits is exactly what's going on with um, Annie's church. And that is you get a hold of the leadership and you take the leadership in a totally different direction away from their principles. So it's yeah. important to understand that, that clearly narcissism is part of it. But there are many other traits. And so what I try to do on this site is help people understand what's going on right in front of their face. Right. And uh, which we start off by talking about Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was and is clearly still um, under the influence of a Jezebel. Because those of us who can remember... Bill Clinton stood up at a podium and looked American people in the eye, shook his finger, and said he did not have sex with that woman. He absolutely yeah. lied to the American people. And he didn't think he did anything wrong because he was empowered by the Jezebel spirit to deal with his own flesh. And yeah. so, so we have to understand that, there's, that there is evil in the world it tries to divide us. It tries yeah. us to fit one against the other. And Donald Trump is playing the same role as the king in Israel who killed the Jezebel. He is yeah. trying to overcome evil in the United States and be a leader 
for the world. Yeah, because I mean, it's incredible. I'm actually it's a real privilege to have this conversation with you guys because I am finding it incredibly encouraging, as well as I'm actually in some ways finding it shocking because. I would say to you as well that there's an epidemic of this. There's an epidemic in people's relationships as well, where we're turning around and saying, you know, God's got a calling upon people's lives and they need to get on with it, where they're then finding that the Jezebel situation that they're in is trying to kill them, is trying to stop them doing that. You know, as the enemy says, as the Bible says, Satan comes to kill, steal and destroy. And we see that. And we see that then politically on what's going on. The fact that in the state of the nation speech that the President of the United States gave and that you have Nancy Pelosi behind him ripping up his speech. There were things going on that we would never have dreamed of at all. And you quite rightly, you say this, that the Democrats say of the JFK era or of the 50s era where you know, maybe more pro-union and all this and certain workers' rights are not the Democrats of today because the Democrats today are full-scale. They've swallowed the book of Salalinsky, 12 Rules for Radicals, and they are, you know, they are on this on speed. You cannot deny this. And and this this whole thing of progressive, progressive, progressive. What? Progressive what? To enter into the gates of hell i mean it's absolutely it shocks me dan and and uh, you have outlaid something that i find absolutely fascinating because just quickly we have then within the whole thing of psychology and as a society and say at home it's got we're full of people in psychiatric because people don't want to recognize that there is good and evil well, they don't want to recognize that there is a God, but they don't want to recognize that their good is good and evil, and that, in fact, we are in a spiritual battle. We are, and I think that, that, that what I've been trying to say and to write about for a long time is that we are, we are potentially seeing, I don't care whether it's Bernie or it's Joe Biden, yeah. Although I have I have another story there, which Annie knows. Um, I don't believe either one is going to have enough votes to win the nomination. Mm. And they're going to go into the convention. And even when the superdelegates vote in the second ballot, there won't be enough. And so I believe that Jezebel is working behind the scenes yep. to bring Hillary, bring Hillary Clinton to the floor and be nominated by acclamation from the Democratic Convention as a compromise between Joe and Bernie. And I believe what we're going to experience is, is the final destruction of the Democratic Party as we know it today. This election is truly not about the economy. It's not about the COVID virus 19, it's mm. not about jobs. This mm. election will be about good versus evil. That's what it will be about. And I, I agree. The American people. I agree because when you look at it, just think if Hillary got in back in 2016, mm. it would mm-hmm. be a whole different 
seen here in America. And mm. I believe, you know, the ascendance of Trump is a godsend, you know. Mm. Yes. I mean, it was just in the nick of time, at the right time, mm. to to try to save this republic from, you know, those on the left. And as you say, they are evil. So I have hope. Yeah, and I, if, you, if you go back to Scripture and you look at how the Jezebel was killed, she was thrown from the parapet of her castle Absolutely. and eaten alive by dogs, eaten yeah. alive by dogs. But yeah. the person who ordered her to be thrown from the castle was a former general who became the new king. And as you look at look at the description in the Old Testament of this king who was radical, impulsive, drove his chariots too fast, made decisions too fast, he's in a spitting image of Donald Trump. So I think that that God is working on our side to fight the evil of the Jezebel spirit that has had control of our country for almost 40 years, and it's time for them to go. That is very true. That is very true. And if Hillary gets the nomination, I say she takes Bloomberg as her VP. Wow, I could I could very well be. One other one other one other piece I would throw out for you, Annie, is that I did some research this morning. We talk about the Democrats are talking about free college for everyone right now. Right now, the national graduation rate from college is about 51%, which means yeah. that 49% I think it's of the young, young people. I, uh, I, I saw something some recently case, it was down to 47. Well, that could be. Uh, you, can, you can do a Google search, and you can find – I don't know how they're still in business, but you can find out of 100 colleges, you could probably find – 25 whose graduation rate is under 10%. How do these institutions stay in business with graduation rates under 50%? And if that's true, young people who are deciding to go to college and take on the debt to go to college only have a one, one, one in two chance of ever graduating and are going to be saddled with the debt. Because the education system has said you cannot succeed and prosper in the United States out without a college degree. That's not true. We look Ab- at the absolutely. jobs that have been created. Absolutely. Jobs and, and, oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Dan. I was going to say that That's all right. they're trying to get it's like at home. Well, we're call, you're calling it an education system. Isn't it a propaganda tunnel? And it's the propaganda tunnel of socialism. This yes. is what we're finding at home that is taught within universities. It's socialism. And then we we'll suddenly do gender studies or we we'll do anti-white studies or whatever. And we'll, we'll do apologist studies for this, that and the other. You know, I mean, uh, to some people might think, well, we're being totally and utterly sarcastic. Well, some of these things actually exist. If we've now... We've now got a comment where a, a, an, a, a politician in Australia a few days ago made a comment saying, well, look, for our government business, we use white cars. We need to change the color of white because white is seen as oppressive. And we need to come up with drive around in cars of a different color. I mean, I've never heard so much 
utter garbage, but people buy into this through the economic system, and that's within your education system and in our education system at home. Yeah, we we have a we have a, we have the the control of our government. I've I've written commentary about the great democratic playbook, and that yes. playbook for forty years has been given to every Republican who's been elected, regardless of what office they have, on a national basis, and it tells him or her how she has to behave when she or he interface with Democrats. And when the Democrats decide to attack you, it tells you why you have to behave. Well, the problem is Donald Trump threw it back to them. See, that's really the problem. That's why they went after him, because he refused to play by their rules. Yeah. And he's consistently refused to play by his, their rules. And that's why they're so angry and so mad and so disrespectful. They're trying to punishing him into submission, and he won't do it. And so that's why I say we may see the end of the Democratic Party. I have said on Annie's show and many other shows that I believe Donald Trump, and I said this probably starting six months ago, I said mm. that Donald Trump will prob- probably win the presidential election 48 states to two. Yes. Maybe yes. 49. Maybe 49. Yes. It would be a total and the Democrats. Yeah, and the Democrats don't see it coming because they believe that they, they're right and everybody else is wrong. So I, that's why I say I think that this, this election is about good and evil, but it's also about the survival of the Democratic Party as it's constituted today, and I don't think it will survive. I find that really, really interesting, Dan, because in 2016, as it was leading up to the presidential election, and I'll just say this as an observation, in April 2016, there was suddenly a sea change within the cross, cross the press at home from the BBC, etc. And the sea change was that they suddenly realized that hold on a minute, Donald Trump could actually win this. So suddenly on all platforms, there was a change. It was sarcasm saying things to completely undermine him. Oh, that's not going to happen and all this kind of thing. And of course, it then did. And people would say to me, well, who do you think is going to win the election? I said, it's obvious. President, you know, I said, Donald Trump with a, with a landslide victory. And they'd look at me and go, oh, no, you can't say that. I said, hold on a minute. I can say that. If you actually pick up the phone and talk to friends of mine on the ground in the United States of America and you start to do the research beyond the mainstream, uh, mainstream nonsense, you will, you will hear the truth. And, of course, that played out. You know, I'm not saying that yes. being clever. It's just that we keep an eye on what's going on. And I can't believe that the Democrats, as we look at the wonderful walk-away movement and all this, we look at Brexit, we look at incredible work that Charlie Kirk, that Candace Owen, etc., have been doing, etc., and uh, David Harris and all the rest, everyone is doing. I am shocked that they cannot see it. They cannot see the car crash that is coming for them. But as you said, you said a really important thing which is this whole thing of the spirit of Jezebel, this whole thing of blindness. And exactly, and you're, I mean, it's incredible what you said. You're absolutely right. Spiritually, that is what's going on. And the other thing is, is I think Jim Garrow, a uh, Christian minister in this country, wrote a book, I think, in a study where he said there are 365,000 churches in this country. 
and you would say to the church ministers, oh, uh, do you think there's a problem with America? Yeah, of course there is, morally everything. You know, 90% plus would say that. Are you going to say or do anything about it? And then there'd be silence. Utter, utter silence. Right. So we have, as Christians on both sides of the pond, you know, we have uh, quite a lot to answer for. And, um, uh, you know, and particularly thinking of America is where, why aren't people standing up in regard to what is going on? I know some people are. Of course they are. But these people well, cannot be silent. Well, gentlemen, I got to tell you, this has been fascinating. The show has gone so fast today. We're down to our last five minutes of the show. Holy cow. I got to get the two of you back on together. We got really have to delve into this Jezebel uh, spirit to let people understand where it's coming from. Because we could vaguely talk about, you know, the scripture, unless we explain the actual history and how she came to be, who she was, and how this spirit has now become because there's there's something like 37 million articles up on the internet dealing with the Jezebel spirit but Dan your website uh, from your article if it's anything like the article you wrote about the Jezebel hunter that you sent me it's going to be phenomenal mm-hmm. I got to take a look at it but I thank you for doing this hard work and and because you answered a lot of questions when you and I talked about this and right. answered explained what was happening to my church what we're seeing going on around here, what is happening in the political arena and in government and in our neighborhoods. It's mm. really important. Mm. And, and, and Mark, you, your, your phenomenal work, the Iris Echo is really important today, especially going into this election. People have to see and understand where someone like Bernie Sanders would lead us. Guys, you are absolutely awesome guys. I've got to talk to you both over the weekend. Call me. And let's see if we can get the two of you back in. I know uh, next week we've got, believe it or not, this is the name of my guest. <laughs> He's got a, Brown, a really wow. humorous book wow. out there. And we also have uh, economic uh, uh, guru, Mike Bustler, who's going to be talking to us. But uh, i got to tell you guys about the book Catcher. It is really, really a very humorous and uh, way of looking at uh, the left compared to how the right deals with them. Very sarcastic. Um, but, guys, you know, thank you for your hard work. And like I said, call me over the weekend. Let's see if we can get the two of you back on because I do have time on next Friday. If not, then let's move it on to the following Friday. There's just too much to talk about. That's, that's really kind of you, Annie, and thank you. And I, it's a, Dan, it's a real privilege to, um, to meet you. And uh, I am very, honestly, I say this from the bottom of my heart, I'm very grateful for this platform or any platform in which to speak. It's a real privilege and nothing that I take for granted, I can tell you that. Well, thank you. I enjoyed being on with you. And uh, if, you, if you have a website, maybe after you go to the JezebelHunter.com, you can yeah. uh, link to that on your website so people can hear a different perspective. I would love to, and I'd like to connect you with others. I'm rebuilding mine as fast as I can okay. at the moment. Um, but, but Dan, I would love to do that, and also love to talk to you. Let's, Annie, let's make this uh, let's make this happen because um, it is a real privilege, and it's quite you know yeah. to be able to talk Annie, about these issues. You know. Annie, do you have his contact information? Yes, what I'll do is I'll send an email to both of you and exchange information for the, both of you to do that. Super. That's, that's very you. kind of you. I Thank you very it. much. Thank you very much well, indeed. 
That's all we got, folks, for the show. I want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for everyone that showed up in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, also over in Facebook, as well as on REO Stream. So I'm going to leave you with the song by Gary Piccarilla, Save America. So until then, uh, I say until then, good night and God bless. Safe travels. Thank you.